Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined, as ever, by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Good day, Stephen. Wow, I didn't think that would bring things to such a screeching halt. <laughs> Are you well? I am, yes. I was just taken aback by the enthusiasm. So we talk animation. What animation will we be talking in this episode? What's on the menu this month? The audience deserves to know. We've got an interview with the director and the producer of How to Train Your Dragon 2. That's the director, Dean Dubois, and the producer of How to Train Your Dragon 2, Bonnie Arnold. They're going to be on the show. What else have we got, then? Well, also on the show, we have uh, some fine fellows from the Disney camp. Disney's Patrick Osborne, Christina Reed, and Jeff Tully director, producer, and production designer, respectively, of the new Disney short, Feast, which will be accompanying the film Big Hero 6. Excellent. Sounds delicious. It does, doesn't it? But enough of this palaver. Let's get the show on the road. Stephen! My God. What news in the animation world? News from the animation world. Well, the news this month is that every single animated television show or movie or thing made between the year 1972 and 1999 is being remade. That's the news. That sounds delightful. (laughs) Which properties should we expect to see, pray? Well, in the big long lineup of properties getting a 21st century makeover is super ted really yes super ted well it's about time (laughs) that's what everybody said we've seen that like in the last couple of months danger mouse the wombles the clangers thunderbirds banana man all all these these things from our childhood are are, are re-emerging and and sort of heading back for the big screen or the small screen and you know here's here's super ted super ted's on his way back you know, Super Ted taught me to brush my teeth every night. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I had a little Super Ted sticker on the bathroom wall. And that's why I don't have fillings. <laughs> yeah, there's just loads of Super Ted stickers and, and, and Spotty Man stickers and, and Garfield stickers as well. Did you just get Garfield stickers at the dentist's? Not when it came to my teeth. I didn't feel that Garfield was a particularly good role model because he 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 loved his lasagna, that Garfield. But I don't think he brushed his teeth that much, if we're really honest with ourselves. But anyway, no, I don't think Garfield. Uh, <laughs> That's probably why I've got fillings is because Garfield was my role model, and Su- and Super Ted was yours. Yes. So what was the Super Ted premise again? Remind me. It's one of those ones where. Uh, it's all laid out in the in the title sequence, the opening sequence. So he's, uh, a teddy bear has been thrown on, on like a piece of rubbish, thrown away. And then um, an alien comes down and brings him to life. And as if that wasn't enough, the alien then takes it to see Mother Nature, who lives on a cloud, um, uh, who then gives it magic powers. So, you know, we've got science fiction, we've got fantasy we've got merchandise it's it is an animation dream ben you know what i saw a couple years ago i was cleaning out some older vhs tapes i found lots of lovely tapes from my 80s childhood 
old TV shows I used to watch, and on one of them was indeed an episode of Super Ted. Wow. Eh? So I actually saw one not that long ago. It's it's reasonably fresh in my memory. And um, there were a couple of issues with it that I think would perhaps be a little tricky in terms of reviving it in today's um, today's climate. Okay. One being the characterization of uh, the skeleton. I don't remember the name of the character. Do you? I think it's probably just Skellington or something. Skellington. Yeah. Yes. No, it was, it was Texas Pete, Skelton, uh, and Bulk. Right. Yeah. There you go. The skeleton was, shall we say, a little um, uh, uh, affected, perhaps, in his delivery. Very sort of, in that sort of way of like old sort of 70s, 80s sitcoms, that kind of overly affected, effeminate camp character, mm-hmm. which I think now would perhaps be a little like, mm, on the nose, perhaps. It's a kind of um, British comedy carry-on style of uh, of camp acting. Yeah, yeah. That sort of, uh, what was his name? Kenneth Williams? Kenneth Williams, yeah. Yeah. Which, um, but there was also little bits of, like, innuendo of, like, I, the one that was on this tape. This is the only bit I really remember, but, like, it was, I think, how they met the skeleton for the first time or something, and they, they dropped down into this sarcophagus. Um and he emerges from a, a coffin and says something along the lines of, Oh, well, don't burst in just like that. I could have been doing something really private. <laughs> like, it was that level of, like, laying it on thick. I think the other uh, problem that the, the, the Super Tech creator, Mike Young, has is with uh, Bulk, which is, if I believe uh, rightly, is the fat character, which obviously you can't call anyone fat uh, nowadays, like out of a fat character on television without, um, I don't know. It's these kind of issues which have presented themselves in modern television, which weren't present back in the 80s. I think I remember they took they changed the name of the fat controller from Thomas the Tank Engine. They did, yeah. It's the fat controller to Sir C- Yeah. No, sorry, to Sir Top and Hat. So you can't call fat people fat now. That's... Um... I get, like, I'm not on board with a culture of fat shaming, and I'm not exactly a skinny fella myself, but I've certainly lived the life of of the, uh, shall we say, the corpulent gentleman to d- much to the higher degrees than I do now, and there is a point where fat is just the adjective, it's not an insult, mm. you know? If someone's fat, they're fat. And that's not, it's not fat shaming to refer to a character by a very sort of obvious characteristic, mm. I would have thought. But then what do I know? I, th- I suppose the problem then is is kids in the playground calling everyone else fat, which has never happened before. <laughs> well, if you call the fat kids fat, then, you know, yeah. isn't that just the way the world works? I, w- I would completely agree with you, Ben. You ridicule everyone for whatever their thing is. Everyone had the thing, mm-hmm. you know. A uh, guy with the sticky out ears. You whip him with the towels until he bleeds and cries. You know, fun schoolyard memories. Yeah. The 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 ginger. Holy hell! That that any of them make it through school alive. <laughs> but even the the guys who were like just sort of normal and average, there was always something you broke balls about. Yeah. And after a while, it just maybe it was a little sort of annoying or insulting at the beginning, but then you kind of thicken your skin up. 
that's kind of an important, crucial part of development, I would have thought. Absolutely. Because, and then also, if you lump in just breaking balls and say, hey, hey, fat boy, or hey, you know, gayer or whatever, like, if you lump that in with the legitimate issue of bullying, which is so serious and so kind of, I think it's out of control now, in a way that it never was when we were kids, and we had this sort of outlet of just kind of, you know, f***ing with each other. If you lump in just sort of like casual name-calling with like these campaigns of abuse, then you're really trivializing a serious issue. And that's exactly, it seems, what people are doing nowadays. Mm -hmm. By having this sort of overly accepting society, it certainly hasn't stopped the flow of bullying. I mean, with texting and email and, you know, all the stuff you can do on the internet, it's worse than ever now. So I don't think, you know, changing the name of a character is going to help out the kid who goes for the second dessert in the school cafeteria. It's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, we sorted that out. So, listen up, society. (laughs) It's better than Steve are coming to sort you out. (laughs) Yeah, I I often think that it is basically the people who make the programmes just being too overly cautious. And it it is a problem. I don't think there would be an issue with any of these characters returning to to TV screens. I mean, they said that the, um, the Texas Pete... Uh, the problem with him, so basically there's three three bad guys in, in, in Super Ted. You've got the skeleton, you've got Bulk, and you've got Texas Pete. So the skeleton is is can't be done anymore because he's camp. Bulk can't be done because he's fat. And Texas Pete carries guns around. That's his problem. Well, I mean, that's completely unacceptable. A cartoon character with guns from tech from the South? <laughs> There's a, a chapter in the history of like Disney and Looney Tunes that we've talked about that is kind of, they've covered it up with a blanket a bit for reasons that you can understand because of racial insensitivity and uh, political issues, mainly sort of wartime issues and that kind of thing that absolutely don't hold up and are quite offensive now. But like what's sort of happened more recently is like they're not showing Speedy Gonzales scenes or Foghorn Leghorn scenes, Mm -hmm. or Yosemite Sam scenes, because of the way they kind of depict those sort of regional stereotypes. Yeah. If you can even call them that. But it's, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I I find it completely ridiculous. It it goes back to the fact that these cartoons, the Looney, Looney Tunes cartoons, were not created for children. They were created for the cinema. And if kids were in the audience, great. It's just that in the 60s, when, when they needed content for television, it found its way onto, um, onto the kids' channels. The original uh, animated sitcom wasn't created for, for children, but now you see it on Cartoon Network, the Flintstones. You know, It kind of goes to show that the way that animation is treated. Did you see that uh, Ardman signed a deal with Amazon and Rex the Runt has been added to the children's section. Hmm. How short-sighted is that? I mean, what, some, something as big as Amazon to say, oh, it's, it's plasticine, it's done by the Wallace and Gromit guys, so it must be for kids. Mm. One of the characters carries a gun around, a, a huge gun. Uh, oh, man, it's, it's incredible. It's... It's it's an issue that that's been facing animation for a long while. I know. I, I think that that it could could. I was pretty young when that show came out. You know, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I. Was, I think I was about thirteen, fourteen. I th- I think with something like that, it's like. I mean, it, it's not like South Park, quite. No. 
you know, I think I think you can just about get away with it being categorized for kids. But I, from what I know of it, that's certainly not really its intention, right? Like it wasn't really conceived like stressed Eric. That wasn't really conceived as like a kids show. Oh no, it was. It wasn't created for kids. There was no kind of underlying this is for kids so let's put an educational narrative in it or anything like that it was created no. for late night television right i mean how adult because i i've dipped into it but how adult does that show get well it gets it gets more risky than adult it's like one of these shows that that doesn't need to be overly adult so it doesn't need to really rub it in your face but there are moments in it which would probably make adults uncomfortable if their children are watching such as the character brandishing a gun or you know the, the the kind of adventures that they get up to or the things that they say there's there's the way to combat that is to edit it so there'll probably be some kind of edited version that ends up on amazon right which is an insult to the program why not just put it on amazon you know rex the runt can be your archer stick it in its own category stick it in adult you know maybe adults can pick it up maybe adults who are now you know maybe our age will oh, i remember this from when i was you know an adolescent i can enjoy it again I think they also did like edit out guns in Elmer Fudd episodes. Oh man! Really? Like, because that take, makes certain episodes completely meaningless. Yeah, you <laughs> know what I mean. Like the the main ones where he's like going between Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. The one he keeps shooting Daffy Duck in the face. You know, rabbit season, duck season. <laughs> Pronoun trouble. <laughs> well, such a f-ing great line. Censorship trouble. Rex the Rat's been one of those ones I kind of wanted to to give a proper watch to again as an adult. Yeah, so I'd, I'd be able to comment on it better. But you know, the gun thing, car- cartoon characters from when we were kids—they had guns, and it didn't warp our minds so much. But I, I think that from what you're saying, maybe yeah, there's a tonal thing or something that. But then, if you tried, if they did the same thing, like if they looked at something like a Bob and Margaret, and they put it on and categorized it as a kids show, that would be kind of a big screw up because there's swearing in that, and like one episode was like about an Anne Summers party and. Mm-hmm. But I could see the oversight being made, you know? If you were to just look at, say, a still from the show, this looks cute, this looks quaint. Mm-hmm. Someone, you know, in the in the Amazonian metadata jungle might make an oversight. Maybe that's just what, what happened with this. Well, you can only guess, really. I mean, but even, like, when South Park came out, I remember, like, uh, it, it was such a thing for kids. Like, kids adored it. Because it was so obviously not for kids, mm-hmm. but it absolutely had everything that a kid could engage with in the show, but it also had the added benefit of, of dirty words and sex jokes and uh, violence. I don't know if, if this is a sweet memory or not, but I remember like in the heyday of South Park's UK merchandising, which actually kind of petered out earlier, I think, than the rest of the world in the UK, but it, it burned very bright when it did. Yeah. And you couldn't walk into a shop without South Park stuff everywhere. And uh, the South Park key rings and little collectibles. And and the same posters, the many deaths of Kenny and uh, yeah. the one with all the characters on. And I remember like it was an, H- an HMV or something. And I was, I was sort of leafing through whatever it was I was getting. And this kid who couldn't have been more than like nine years old and his mates, they, they see like the new batch of South Park key rings. And this kid goes, holy sh! they got Big Gay Al! <clears throat> and he was so delighted yeah. to get this little figurine of Big Gay Al. And I'm like, well, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. Because I remember that, that episode was 
that I think kind of elevated the show, I think, in a lot of people's estimation, because that was quite a um, on-point episode, and it was quite... Even in the sort of mid to late 90s, people were still a bit, like, wary mm-hmm. of gay characters and stuff like that. And so, for all its caustic crudeness, I think South Park were a bit pioneering in that respect. And I think it's great that, you know, a little kid would want, you know, that character as an action figure. Yeah. Or a key ring or whatever. But it was just like... Dude, you you shouldn't be watching the show anyway. <laughs> you know, it's nice that you like the character, but uh, and you wonder how much kids even understand mm-hmm. of like the the humor. But then when you watch shows from that era of South Park, like it's really very tame now. Yeah, so weird to think how like wild and crazy it seemed. It's it's evolved into quite the kind of well every every week there's a different. It's like a a message, but. And they don't necessarily have Kyle at the end saying what the message is. <laughs> you know, it's something that they've abandoned, but something which they've they've really ran with as well. I kind of feel like that they don't know what their message is a lot more nowadays. It's a strange thing of watching two reasonably young men. I think they were sort of younger than we are mm-hmm. now when it started. They still had a kind of punk attitude, and then, like, as they went through their 30s, they became a lot more sort of, you know, plugged into topical matters and and trying to work out, I guess, issues the way people do through this show. And I think that they've made some of the best points, social points about, you know, say, attitudes about sex education and marijuana use and stuff like that. And I, I, I don't think enough of a sort of appreciation is shown on that era of South Park when they were really, really firing on all cylinders and making very excellent points. Nowadays, I kind of, I don't really get that sense of it. They can still be quite funny from time to time, but I think that as you get older and time just goes by quicker and you lose track of what's going on, it just sort of seems like... There was an episode they did on the the, uh, Zimmerman case that was all over the place. And I, I was like, what are they trying to say? And then I think what I kind of concluded at the end of it was like they don't know what they feel about this Mm. and that's reflected in this episode because a lot of people didn't know what to feel about that and I remember sort of thinking like if they if this had happened I mean sad that it happened at all obviously but if this had happened 10 years previously we probably would have gotten a better South Park episode (laughs) (laughs) so you know is that the real tragedy Ben it certainly is (laughs) so what else is being brought back well, we've seen the first uh, image from the new uh, Thunderbirds series, which is just basically an image of Tracy Island. Okay. Well, it just looks like a like a, a render shot of um, of any old <laughs> any old island. Mm-hmm. But if you look a little bit closer, you can see the kind of Tracy uh, residence, and you can see the but it's got a kind of handmade feel to it, and yeah, it looks pretty cool. But you can't really judge an entire series by one image. They made a Thunderbirds movie. Ten years ago, I, I, I see. Yes. I don't imagine this doing very well, but <laughs> it was live action. It was live action, yeah. Was that a success? Hmm. Um, it wasn't very, you know, it wasn't very well received. Yeah, because that would have been right around when Team America came out. Yeah, actually, yeah. Maybe that, maybe that was deliberate. Perhaps. Perhaps. I don't remember his Busted did the soundtrack. Are you, are you kidding me? No, busted. Oh, good lord! So you can really, you can really place its kind of uh, its position in the in the zeitgeist by. <laughs> like, uh, so this is a CGI film, the new one, or is it a show? The, 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 it's a show. Um, okay. It's a mix CGI and and puppets. It's been done by Weta, uh, the you know the the guys who do all the Lord of the Rings stuff. Oh, okay. 
you know, it looks quite good from what I see. And I, rem- I remember probably around about 95, 96, when it, when it came back, like, really big when we were kids. In the 90s, they were repeating a show from the 60s, you know. And now we're in the, what, we in, what would you call this era, the teens or whatever. Why can't they repeat shows from the 80s instead of having to remake them? What's the, what's the difference? Well, I mean, we all know the answer, but I think that eighties shows perhaps are a harder watch now than a sixties show would would be in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I don't imagine a lot of today's sort of kids having the patience for a lot of eighties shows. Yeah, because a lot of them are very slow and very plodding, and I think the the spirit behind them was so superficial and and money based, and that ties in well with the attitudes now of making films, but making a new film is more likely to make more money than, say, just re-releasing like an old film from the 80s. And you put out a Transformers 80s cartoon on DVD, it's going to make a bit of money for the sort of nostalgic crowd, and maybe a few kids will want to watch it. But you put out a brand new movie, then, you know, every idiot's going to go see it. Yeah, that's true. Have you seen it? The new movie? <laughs> you know what I always felt that Transformers needed was Marky f***ing Mark. <laughs> It was the jewel that was missing from the crown. It, it, I, my sort of question is that, like, obviously, the difference between showing a 60s show in the 90s and showing an 80s show nowadays is that television's changed an awful lot. The landscape of television's changed. Um, back in the 90s, you still had four channels, you know, or five. And, and now we, we, we've got multi, uh, multi-platform entertainment we've got kids watching shows and playing on their apps at the same time you know that go with the show and um we've got catch-up television so you can watch television shows whenever you wish we've got netflix so you can put it on whenever you want television is transforming at a rate which which is it's never transformed as fast in our lifetime and I'm, and i suppose it's only ever going to get quicker within the next five years television's going to transform um you know immeasurably which which kind of goes, well, why are they remaking it when they can just stick these episodes on YouTube or, or, or on a platform where people can just dial them up if they wish to see them and, and, and watch them? Probably because of the need to you know, monetize them. And sticking them on there, you're only really getting a license for them. You're not really getting anything else. And if you remake a show, then you reawaken the kind of nostalgia crowd and the next generation uh, and then the next generation will go into a shop and they will say, oh, Super Ted toys. I want Super Ted toys. Mm. You know. I think also retaining rights as well. That's a part of it. Mm. Like if a property is dormant for a certain amount of time, whoever has the rights to it, they'll lose their hold on it. Yeah. But if you remake something, it resets that. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of like bad like sequels to films like straight to video or TV movies and that kind of thing. It's just so a studio can kind of keep an intellectual property and sort of say it's their own. Cause I like, know oh, we made this film like the really bad sequels are called Ashcan films. I found out oh, yeah. where like they know that they're making worthless garbage and they'll make it like as cheaply as possible, but it just means that they have the rights for another 10 years or so. And then maybe they can remake it properly down the line. Yeah. Is it like Roger Corman's version of the Fantastic Four or Captain America or whichever film he did? I remember seeing a, when the Fantastic Four came out, 
uh, I was at university and it was the, f- the film to go see. It was like, oh, wow, let's go see the Fantastic Four. And we were all feeling a little bit skint, but one of our pals had downloaded it and he's like, I've downloaded it. We can all, we can all watch it. <laughs> and so we all got ready. We all we got, we've downloaded the Fantastic Four. Brilliant. We're, not, we're going to save some money tonight. And we sat down to watch it. And it was it was the like early nineties version <laughs> which had been done, you know, these this kind of uh, just to keep hold of the rights uh, version of the film. That sounds exactly like that kind of thing. Yeah. By the way, speaking of um, motley crews of of the superheroes saving the day, etc. There's this thing I keep seeing ads for. It's like a Fantastic Four type movie, except one of the characters is a cartoon raccoon. Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, is that... A, that's a parody, right? No, no, that's a, that's a real thing. It's not lampooning that type of film? No, 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 that's, that's a real thing. But, but Steve, one of the characters is a cartoon raccoon. That's, that's correct. One of the characters is also a tree. A tree voiced by Vin Diesel. So it's a kid's film. It's one of those sort of lesser-known Marvel properties that, that they decided to, to give the big screen treatment. Um, I mean, it's part of the same universe... Uh, but obviously a lot wider than Thor and Captain America and Iron Man and the Avengers and everything else. So it is all part of that whole the whole Marvel everything, really. I've not seen it yet, but I've heard some. I've heard that it's a, you know a good laugh, and if that's what they want it to go for, then well done. Oh, if they're having fun with it, yeah, and fair enough. I just it it seemed like you just catch snippets of trailers and like, oh, is this really? Are they taking? You know, but yeah, if they're, if they're embracing. The silliness of it, then go ahead, kind of thing. Well, you think you can't, you can't do anything but embrace the silliness of it. Well, I mean, X Men seem to take itself awfully seriously, and I don't know if the Fantastic Four is the same. The Marvel or DC, whichever one is like all the superheroes together. There are a couple of them, but like it's got Iron Man in it and the Incredible Hulk, and they're all you know hanging yeah. out. It was right. called it was called the Avengers, Ben. You couldn't miss it. <laughs> but that one seemed a little like you know people. Even if something kind of is is sort of fun, then it's like the. But there are people in the public who take it incredibly seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to think if I was a fan of that kind of thing, I'd at least sort of have a bit of a sense of humor about it. Yeah, and there's plenty of stuff actually where that's absolutely the case. If I think about it, the reason why it seems like it's a parody because it's like. One like the girl character seems sort of modelled almost. They all seem sort of modelled on sort of counterparts in other similar types of films. So there's like the green girl instead of you know, which in the Fantastic Four is she like invisible or something? Yeah, the invisible woman in the Fantastic Four is invisible. Yes, that's her. That's her name. Is the invisible woman? Is it invisible woman? Well, do you see what I mean though? Like if that's what they're gonna. <laughs> And then the tree man, I mean, that's like a version of the rock man that the f***ing Kamish played. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. So they all do kind of seem like they're cut from the same, you know, and, and we've sort of discussed in the past, like, that approach to, you know, gangs of, of crime fighters and stuff and how Ninja Turtles started was a rather astute little lampoon on that. Mm-hmm. But then that became something that people now take very, very seriously. And we have this strange film that's... <laughs> probably going to do very well that seems so many miles apart from what people our age remembered like the ninja turtles to be well i got fingers crossed for that who's the who who originally created the ninja turtles because apparently he's been on hand to make sure that it's it's not as michael bay as possible even though he's he's a producer 
sometimes also the problem is even if a, an original creator is involved, sometimes that original creator can start taking the thing too seriously. Yeah. Something that's completely silly or intended as a satire. It then becomes something more than that. And then people start to take it, you know, I th- and it's weird the way that will manifest itself. It'll happen in odd, unexpected ways. Like even like the Powerpuff Girls, bizarrely, like they made a Powerpuff Girls movie that has none of the charm of the, show because the show embraces what a ridiculous concept it is mm-hmm. and like they throw in some dirty jokes and like they they just have fun with with the whole thing whereas the film absolutely was for like the audience that are like for nine to i don't know 12 year old girls or boys perhaps and it really mythologized it and it gave like all this backstory and it kind of put the show in this legitimate context which is completely unnecessary yeah to a man in his 20s, you know, <laughs> now 30s, but it, this was a while ago. I didn't exactly have high hopes for the Powerpuff Girls film, but it was on. You watch it, and it's like, eh, eh. this was kind of a disappointment. Hmm. And uh, what was another one? Um, well, even South Park, I think. There was an odd kind of little um, multi-episode arc that mythologized and legitimized again the whole notion of Kenny dying over and over again. Oh, the, the the one with Cthulhu. Yeah, Coon and Friends. Yeah. And that one, <laughs> again, in parts, that was, again, doing the parody of exactly this, those types of action films, those old cartoons, comics, etc. But the whole sort of Kenny angle, it seemed like they, and they, they were really thorough about it. Like, mm. they addressed contradictions in it, which were sort of what made it funny to begin with. And yeah. It didn't ruin the joke, but it just seemed like, I don't get why they're doing that. Like, why why is this now this kind of, like, power this kid has? Because that was the other thing. On some level, the other characters would be aware of it, you know? Mm. Kenny's family is suing the town because he died on, like, an amusement park ride. And they're like, Kenny, he dies all the time, you know? <laughs> I guess I speak probably because South Park exists in such a kind of elastic universe is that you can you can just use these characters as a template to get across whatever they wish to get across. But that was originally the joke of it and the premise yeah. of it. So why explain that? Mm. And I think that over time, the show became so big that a chunk of their audience desired that. You know, and they so that, that those were who they were sort of catering to. And possibly even they and themselves felt like, you know, gosh, we have this character who dies all the time and we never explained it. <laughs> yeah. Never mind that, you know, in interviews, you know, a decade previously, they're like, oh, yeah, we're just having fun. You know, it's, you know, they enjoyed how overexcited the media was about it. Like, they kill this character every show. <laughs> they're nuts. It's 1997. Because back then, everyone said the year after they said a sentence. Yeah. So, yeah, that kind of... And when the dog dies in Family Guy and people are genuinely like, oh, my God, can you believe... What do you... What show are you watching? Are we actually looking at the same thing? Like, because I'm looking at a show that has never had any established continuity, where the characters could mm-hmm. die several times within an episode and just be alive again. Like, but then what is it, like, sort of about the way it's presented like people just need some legitimacy to the the ephemeral silliness that they watch it can't just be ephemeral silliness i think i think in in that respect you've got to give some respect to the sort of guardians of the galaxy film that you saw because 
the way that um, Marvel and Paramount and Disney have handled the kind of Iron Man, Captain America, Avengers, Hulk, all this kind of kind of world, is they've just gone for it. I mean, originally when the first Iron Man film came out, no one really gave a shit about Iron Man. You know, everyone was all about Spider-Man and Wolverine and the Hulk and stuff. No one cared about Iron Man. But Robert Downey Jr. turned him into, you know, now he's like, you know, such a big merch, you know, character and 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 everything else. And and they've really ran with it. And and although people may have seen that making Guardians of the Galaxy was a bit of a risk, at the end of the day, it's it's just Marvel doing what they do is just pick something up and run with it and, and have a laugh. Now compare that to the way that DC have handled Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the rest of their kind of, um, the DC Comics back catalogue. You've really got to respect Marvel for, for making a film about a talking raccoon, whereas DC can't even create a Wonder Woman film. And I've seen that written online, and, and you think about it, it's like, yeah, yeah, what the hell are DC playing at? Why are they being so precious with this character? But in the same respect, it's because there are, people out there that will get ants in their pants over the slightest little things. I mean, when Ben Affleck was announced as, as Batman, you know, the internet basically <laughs> exploded. But like, you know, when Heath Ledger was announced as a Joker, the internet did the same thing. The way fandom and um, studios kind of working together nowadays is, uh, it's completely weird. I mean, I, I don't know whether or not when the first Superman, the Richard Donner first Superman film came out in 1978 or whenever it was, whether he gave a toss what anyone thought. Yeah, well, he didn't have Twitter back then. Oh, exactly, yeah. I mean, can you imagine what kind of film it would have been if he would have had the kind of the pressure of, of looking at his phone and seeing how many Twitter notifications he's got from nerds going, oh, the cape's not, the, the logo's too big on his chest. <laughs> Why have you cast Christopher Reeves in it? Ugh. You know, all that sort of stuff. It, you know, if that would have happened back then. That's, I think that it's, it's really kind of demystified the whole creative process in a way. And you see directors, you know, in yeah. Flame Wars. They exist, these people, and they have a bigger voice than ever before. Thank God. <laughs> it's like we've read, like, sort of Facebook comments on things, and, like, what do you realize over time? It's like, there's a very vocal sort of section of, of, you know, just everything that will either love something and praise it to the skies or hate it with an incandescent passion. Mm-hmm. Reserved for you know criminal activity, and but they've directed it at you know Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> and I, I get like having a bit yeah. of a rant on Twitter or Facebook, like oh my god, I just saw this terrible show, blah blah blah, whatever. And then you kind of forget about it. Like I think that's how the sort of most of the world sort of operates. But like the people who like they they hate shows so much that that they like the show's Facebook page just to on a daily basis lambast it mm-hmm. and equally sort of weird to me is like people who comment positively but with utter banality on shows like just bringing absolutely nothing to the table you know what i mean let's do yeah. a little experiment okay let's go on to facebook.com little plug for you there zuckerberg i know you're floundering the squiggly <laughs> podcast will help you wherever we can let's go to facebook.com forward slash the simpsons now, I'm just going to pick a random post on this Facebook page. This is the official Facebook page because there's a little blue tick on it. Uh, and I'm just going to open up the comments for the first thing they've posted, which is just a... It's literally just a picture of the Simpsons outside their house. Here are some comments. 
<clears throat> from Adrian Lesegre. Beer! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Seven likes. From Tim Campbell. Doe. Because that's what Homer says. Yeah. Right? From Gabby Naranjo. Also doe. This time spelled correctly with the apostrophe. That didn't get as many likes, though. No, no. Well, it's because she, she didn't use all capitals. I caramba. Because that was what Bart said once. In 1989. <laughs> Did he ever really... That, all the sort of Simpsons catchphrases find an episode where they actually say them. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, eat my shorts, man. When did he ever f***ing say that? Season one? All the merchandise. <laughs> uh, woohoo. It's just... Uh, what are you doing with your... Uh, and then I guess it's just like we've all kind of procrastinated on Facebook and stuff and just sort of what but like it's just, I know I've got the perfect thing to bring to this exchange dough <laughs> oh oh my oh I'm contributing culture yes <laughs> everyone will get this social media I'm doing it <laughs> <laughs> that should be a, that should totally be a t-shirt <laughs> I don't know why. They, people are probably five years old. Why am I? <laughs> <laughs> They're five years old. They shouldn't be on Facebook. You know what? I mean, uh, however it's going to go down, anyone outside of our kind of immediate circle on, like, my Twitter or Facebook that have gotten wind of the Simpsons and Family Guy getting together, they're all for it. They think it's a funny idea, and they're like, yeah, I can't wait to see this. Because they'll probably have it on in the background, you know, when they're having a beer or something. You know, and I think I've worked out, and this has actually helped me resolve some of my issues with shows kind of going on too long. I've kind of worked out more how people, I think, just engage with television by engaging with television. Something happened recently, Steve. Strap mm. in. This I'm... is going to be hard. I moved to a new apartment, and for nearly a fortnight, I didn't have regular Wi-Fi. I had to use borrowed BT Wi-Fi. It was terrible. Jesus. And I didn't have Netflix for nearly two weeks. What to do? What to do? So what, what did you Did you just have Freeview? I, exactly. What, like some kind of tramp? It was... I, I've never felt more in touch with the proletariat, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> the strange thing starts to happen where... Like, there, okay, there, as far as I can tell, on the whole of Freeview, there are only four shows. There's Come Dine With Me, which is on always. Yeah. And then there are three sitcoms, uh, and they all kind of merge together, uh, except for the Big Bang Theory. I'm aware of that enough to kind of, like, remove that from the others. But, mm. like, the others are, like, and they're well-known. People are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. One of them I kind of like because it reminds me of The Emperor's New Groove, because it has Kronk in it and David Spade. And so if you just have it on in the background, it's like, oh, this is an Emperor's New Groove spinoff. Nice. But that aside, it's completely indistinguishable from any other sitcom. And the other one, or possibly, like, like there's one with the girl from American Pie in it, and Doogie Howser is the alpha male, which is kind of weird. How I Met Your Mother. What starts to happen after a while is that the, sh the quality of the shows don't improve. I mean, they're, they're sort of chucklesome, I guess. I can see why people have... have sort of latched onto them in a sense because I, when they're on every day and it's just the thing that's on 
and you're doing things, you're tidying, you're doing your sort of chores of the day, and the show, the shows are on in the background. After a while, there's a strange comfort that comes from them. That familiar group of voices. And this was only after a week, you know. And I wouldn't say I'm like converted as a fan of these shows necessarily, but I kind of get it more. Mm-hmm. And when you think of something, it's like, wow, this is why people still love The Simpsons, because this was as much as they ever engaged with it. Yeah. So that's why if an episode that to your eye is of extreme quality is is seen, and then you then juxtapose that against an episode made way more recently that's very weak, we see it as hugely different, whereas most of the rest of the world can't really be bothered enough. Yeah. That's quelled my incredulity at the show still going on and, and my kind of bafflement at making these kind of gimmicky allegiances with, you know, shows like Family Guy or whatever. I mean, if for a British show, it's easier, I think, to get more sort of invested because there's a lot less to sort of experience. But you could have The Simpsons on every day for a month and you'd probably never see the same episode twice. Mm-hmm. But if it's like a show like The Office or, you know, The Young Ones or Blackadder or something like that, you know, they only made 20 episodes of most British shows. So you sort of know them back to front in a way mm-hmm. and you feel more sort of... In- so I think like people, the way people kind of... The British public certainly have this kind of real fondness for British TV shows and that kind of... It's because of this sort of level of exposure and how how in-depth they know them, whereas I think an American show, it's way more sort of... It's, it's spread a lot thinner, I, I think. Yeah. That being said, did you see the uh, Comic-Con four minutes worth of the, the, the Simpsons guy episode of Family Guy with the Simpsons in it. I, I saw about a minute of it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, if you'd have seen the whole thing, you'll know that you don't really need to see the episode. I think it was just <laughs> the kind of highlights, which is just Stewie and Bart and Homer and, and Peter. And it, and it is nice to see, as you say, that they're, that they're having fun with it and they're just sort of... i, I got to say, I did laugh at... Um... Stewie calling Moe's Tavern. I thought that was pretty funny. That was that, that that was brilliant. And the brilliant part about that was the, the way that, like, what could you do with the Bart character after Stewie said that? <laughs> what, what's Bart's line? He's not going to go, I caramba, right? Well, like, it's just like that it was it was such a crap prank call that Bart did. Yeah. Like, it was, a, it was like, really lame compared to, like, the old ones. And yeah. then Stewie's like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then he does it and he completely misses the point. Um... <laughs> Have there ever really been sort of like good, like memorable cartoon crossovers? The Flintstones meet the Jetsons. You know, I would put the episode of The Simpsons where the critic is in it up there, but I think that's because no one really knew what the critic was. So it kind of, you don't sort of need to know in a way. But but the thing is, it fit around an amazing simpsons episode where they just lampoon film festivals and that's something that you understand you know attending film festivals quite as, as regularly as you do oh, especially now yeah but were there any other like i'm trying to sort of think i mean was the flintstones meet the jets was that actually a thing what that was my god you didn't see the flintstones meet the jetsons it was amazing it was a great show uh, it was one of the things that we had on video as kids and we could watch it over and over again it, it was um right. For some, I think Elroy had created a time machine, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they accidentally ended up in Bedrock. And then the Flintstones accidentally end up in the future and become wildly successful. And the Jetsons in the past become wildly successful. But then they decide that you know they're upset because uh, 
you know, they're not they're not in their own times. And the Jetsons managed to get to the future. The time machine doesn't work. But then when the Flintstones, when the Flintstones, Ben, get inside their their car, which is now in a museum, it magically travels through time because the car wanted to go back in time more than anyone else. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's... I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what 29-year-old Steve would think about it, but 10-year-old Steve loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. Oh, you know which one I really liked, actually, at the time? It really worked was... Uh, the kids don't even know what I'm talking about now. Uh, the X-Files meets The Simpsons. Yes. That was actually pretty funny. That that was on a couple of weeks ago, and it, and it, it really strangely hasn't aged. All the jokes in it. I mean, maybe it's because I watched The X-Files when I was a kid. I wasn't a massive X-Files fan. It was too scary for me. But the the crossover, it still works today. There's no kind of, oh my God, this is so 90s. Although it is probably very 90s, it still fits. You know, the jokes are still great. You know, the the way that it's explained and and the way that it's all about Homer's mystery and, and, and stuff. It's, it's yeah, it's a great piece of work. I'm having a look at like a sort of list of um, animation crossovers. There's not as many as you'd think. No, well, well, one of the shows that's making a uh, a comeback as well, um, which we started this conversation with, Danger Mouse. Um, Duckula was originally in that show. Yeah. And then he got his own spin-off. And then they kind of played jokes on each other, like um, Duckula wears Danger Mouse pyjamas. Right. You know, and, 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 and Danger Mouse had encountered Duckula and, and things. And So what what was the... The long game with wearing his pyjamas. There was none. It was just the studio just saying, oh, let's just put him in Danger Mouse pyjamas as little... Oh, right, like as a reference. Yeah, just like a nice little reference. It wasn't like some kind of like prank, like, I'm wearing your pyjamas now. Well, what am I going to wear? Oh, Duckula. <laughs> and then they, yeah. But that was just the studio thinking, oh, what should we do? Well, it's just Danger Mouse. That's nice. This one looks good. Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Smurfs, the Muppet Babies... Slimer from Ghostbusters, Alf, Michelangelo, and Garfield all united to save a young boy from an eternity of drug abuse. No! In Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. Have you seen it? No. Sounds amazing, though. Put it on. Put it on. Play it. If you can find it on YouTube, (laughs) play it. The plot chronicles the exploits of Michael, a teenager who is using marijuana and stealing his father's beer. His younger sister, Corey is worried about him because he started acting differently. When her piggy bank goes missing, her cartoon tie-in toys come to life to help her find it. After discovering it in Michael's room, along with his stash of drugs, the various cartoon characters proceed to work together and take him on a fantasy journey to teach him the risks and consequences a life of drug use can bring. (laughs) Save the world. Save the world? Yeah. The thing, the thing about it as well is, I've just pressed play on it, and there's there's George Bush and Barbara Bush introducing the show. So that's how much of a big deal it was. <laughs> it was the defining event of 1990. <laughs> forget the fall of the Soviet oh Union. Forget, forget that. <laughs> okay, well, I've got myself a little homework assignment. I'm going to watch this before yes. um, the next podcast and give you my full report. Yes, totally. It looks wonderful. So, uh, so, so people listening to the podcast as well can get in touch. Uh, this is great. We can get the people <laughs> who listen to the podcast to tell us what they thought of the cartoon All Stars. Perfect. Right. So, your homework, podcast listeners. I hope you listen. Get a pen. Is to go onto YouTube 
and look at Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue 1990. Watch it and then write in to us. You can get in touch on Facebook. You can get in touch on Twitter. You can email steve at squiggly.co.uk or ben at squiggly.co.uk. And then we'll have a big discussion. We'll read out everything that you have to say about it next time. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> of all the cartoon characters to sort of be against marijuana use, I kind of feel like Michelangelo wasn't the best turtle to pick. <laughs> I mean, you never saw him do it, but let's be honest. Yeah, he was a party dude. He was. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> and he always had the fucking munchies. Yep. Excellent. So, homework time, boys and girls. Get in touch. Let us know what you thought of cartoon All Stars to the Rescue. What a horrible thing to make our audience do. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get no one getting in touch. Ben 10 meets Generator Rex. No idea what either of those are. Well, well I, I know what Ben 10 is from like all the toys I've seen. Yeah, it, it's a t-shirt. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Mr. Magoo met Gerald McBoing Boing. Wow. Well, there you go. Well, that would have, that would have totally f***ed with Mr. Magoo's head. Which <laughs> is Gerald doing all the different noises. And Mr. Boo going, what's going on? Where am I? This is horrible. <laughs> and then he'd have wandered off into a building site and all kinds of shenanigans. Whimsy ensued. What are the others? Bender from Futurama travels back through time to kill Bart Simpson in the Simpsons Futurama crossover Simpsarama. Yeah, it's coming up. It hasn't happened yet. Well, that one seems like... Uh, Half hour of episodic content. <laughs> so yes, animation crossovers. The wonderful world they're in. Were there any other like um, shows being revamped for the contemporary audience? Well, there is like the Clangers and, and you know, Banana Man and stuff. I think we've touched on these in recent podcasts. And Oh, the new Paddington Bear is directed by Werner Herzog. <laughs> I was just about to say Paddington Bear. Yeah, that's not at all creepy. Have you seen the kind of the Tumblr site, the creepy Tumblr? Oh yeah, with the, the Paddingtons photoshopped into horror movies. That was funny. <laughs> yeah, it isn't. It isn't really warm and, and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. It, it is more the kind of like last moments of Timothy Treadwell <laughs> incarnation of Paddington Bear. I think it's the cold, dead eyes of something that's going to scrape out your stomach lining with its claws that kind of maybe goes against the warm, fuzzy children's aesthetic the original was perhaps known for. I'm just going out on a limb there. (laughs) There's some some brilliant ones of him stood in, like, the corridor in The Shining. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And just amongst bloodbaths. It's brilliant. You couldn't have him be, like, sort of posed more ominously. No. Yeah, it's like a sort of, like, Candyman stance. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine that between this podcast, the next podcast, or another podcast, we're, gonna, we're certainly going to get more, more shows announced that they're being remade. What's worth remaking? I mean, can you think? I don't know if it's technically even gone away, but what I really want to see is, like, a SpongeBob movie where, like, he comes into our world. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Well, if only Hollywood would cater for that, then. Oh, what's this? It actually looks kind of <laughs> fun. I've seen it with the sound off, but... If you're going to do something in CG... Yeah. Like, I like that it is kind of tied in with the 2D version as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of it is... The trailer just is all on a beach. So I don't know if that's, that's what the movie's going to be. 
Yeah. But that's kind of fun. The CG looks nice. I think I was never really... SpongeBob was sort of after my time, so I never really kind of... If there's an area of the SpongeBob fandom that's sort of up in arms about it, I don't know. I don't feel like the, the animation of the original series was so um, untouchable, in a way, that they can't sort of play about and do a CG version. Then say that something like the Smurfs or Garfield, where it's done without any soul, mm-hmm. you know. This, I would expect, at least retain some of the, the fun of the show. Because the show is still... Is the show still going? SpongeBob, I think so. I'm not, uh, you say um, it, it's... Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing for me about, about the whole SpongeBob thing is, you know, it's, it's 10 years since the movie. And the movie was out when SpongeBob was about 10 years anyway. And SpongeBob was created when the character was, I don't know, 20 years old or whatever, you know. Um, the, the creator has, has, has held on to SpongeBob for, for quite a time. So the interesting thing about seeing this SpongeBob movie now is, is the generation that has grown up with SpongeBob and no doubt going to be the people complaining about it. You know, the fandom that we were talking about earlier on. The people complaining about it. So that's, that's, I think that's quite kind of interesting. You know, how they're going to react to seeing Spongebob jump out and dance around and stuff. I mean, to me, I don't care. You know, have fun with him. Do what you want with him. You know, I'm not as precious about Spongebob as, 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 some, as this generation will be. But I suppose if, if, if somebody did the same with, with a, a property that I grew up with and loved, then I'd be disappointed. <coughs> Inspector Gadget. Well, we will see. That's my little addition. Nice. Well, <laughs> to that. <laughs> well, we certainly will. I endorse and approve of the preceding comments. <laughs> All of them. Every last one. We uh, have our first guest of the Squiggly Podcast, Bonnie Arnold, the producer of the new How to Train Your Dragon film. How to Train Your Dragon 2. I probably didn't need to clarify that. <laughs> but she also produced the first one as well. She's the kind of um, uh, the caretaker of the Dragon's universe. And she's got quite the career. She's been there for, for everything, really. She produced the first Toy Story film, which is a kind of, I would say, probably a, the start of animated feature films as we know today. You know, the Toy Story films kicked it all off, didn't it? And she was there at the beginning. She also produced um, the Adams Family film, the live action film, which kind of got her into that uh, world. The one with uh, Christopher Lloyd? I think so, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like those ones. Yeah. And I think she did something with Dances with Wolves. So she's been everywhere she's been. Oh, well, you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> Yeah, she's got quite the CV though. You know, working at um, working at first of all at Pixar, and then uh, going across to work at Disney on on Tarzan, and then sort of sticking around at, at DreamWorks on the on the Dragons franchise. I mean, you've seen you saw the, the How to Train Dragon two at um, at Annecy, Ben. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I think I um, articulated my tickled pinkiness in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a, a a lot of fun. Good, wholesome, dragony fun the whole family can enjoy. And uh, I thought Kristen Wiig as the horny twin was very funny. Yeah. I enjoyed it. You've seen it? I've not seen it yet. No, I've not managed to, to take a trip to the cinemas, which is, a, which is a great shame. But I do aim to see it sometime soon. But uh, I'm sure most of the, of the listeners will have seen it, so I'll be as spoiler-heavy as you like. Well, um, everyone dies. Damn it. I'm not really sure what there is to sort of spoil, really. I mean, there is one, I guess, right toward the end. There's a, a 
sort of sad moment, I suppose. But then it bounces back quite quickly. I think that's something that was quite important to them, to Dean, especially from a, a story perspective. Uh, the director, Dean, who we'll talk to later on. You know, you can have your little sad moments, but then you really got to balance it out as the film goes on, <laughs> which I understand. It's not the type of movie that needs to sort of end on a sad note. Although I was actually, it didn't feel like it was dragging, but it felt like it had gone on for quite a while by the time the sort of sad bit comes along. And there's a scene right before the kind of um, uh, the the final, you know... Climax. Yeah. Where you think, is this like a cliffhanger for the third? Because I, I knew that they were going to make a third film. And I was like, are they going to end this film on this note? Because that would be pretty cool if they just end on this real downer, but with a kind of like... And, but, you know, we're going to come back and make things right. And that would be the premise for the third film. But then they carry on with the film and, and pretty much everything's wrapped up mm-hmm. uh, by the end of this one. So I'm not sure what. Things are left a little open for a third film, potentially. But for everything that's sort of introduced in this film is then resolved, mm. more or less. So very satisfying. And, you know, the, the sad stuff isn't so sad that it ruins it, I think. It actually kind of just gives it some humanity. And then, you know, you can't ever really get too sort of sad because, like, it's it's... You know, a real sort of poignant moment and everyone's kind of... And then someone will mention, you know, you've got the heart of a dragon. I was like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah, <laughs> just remind you, what, remind you what you're actually watching. Yeah, cool. <laughs> but it is nice to be taken away from that, isn't it? It is nice to be caught up in that world, to be sold on, on the universe that you're kind of you're seeing in front of your eyes. Indeed. No, I think it did it very well. I think it was very successful as a film. I think it's... Um... It's one of those things that where like I, one of the articles on it commented on it underperforming. So I thought, that's weird, because this is a really... And then you sort of realise that they're just saying that, you know, if you compare these stats to, like, the first film in this period, it's like, all right, (sighs) it's still doing very... It's like when the Beatles sold out Wembley Stadium, and then they didn't quite sell it out the second time, and everyone's like, the Beatles are done! (laughs) (laughs) Such cynicism in the world, Stephen. I don't... I can't live with it. So moving on. Let's, uh, Let's have a little chat then with Bonnie Arnold, the producer of How to Train Your Dragon 2. You're quite heavily involved in the in the Dragons franchise, really, with uh, with not just the the first film but the short films as well. Yes, 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 yes. We just, you know, I just I feel like it's, you know, I feel like I've been entrusted by the studio to sort of oversee what's kind of going on with the with how to train your dragon. But uh, my definitely my focus is on the films. But I'm you know I'm enjoying it so much. Excellent. Um, the uh, How to Train Your Dragon, it, it seems um, to be a, a, a huge departure from, from, if not other, other DreamWorks films uh, of, the, of the era, we're talking about the first film here, but certainly other CG films, uh, there seems to be like a, a kind of a comfortable area which most CG companies kind of stayed in. But How to Train Dragon came along um, and just changed all that. But with, with the success of the first film... Um, what, what, why, why did you decide to evolve the characters, um, make well, Hiccup I 15? To, yeah, <laughs> I have to say that that was a choice of the director, Dean Devlois. I mean, he, you know, when uh, the studio approached, uh, you know, Dean Devlois and Chris Sanders directed the, and wrote the first movie. And then uh, Chris actually had to go back uh, over to a movie that he had started before he, he kind of we asked him to come on to Dragon, which was The Cruise, which he did, which was, you know, turned out really great. But, Dean, you know, they asked Dean if he wanted to take on, uh, you know, the second sequel, How to Train Your Dragon. So he said, let me think about it. And he came back, and we, he and I talked about it, and he pitched 
to uh, Jeffy Katzenberg and Bill Demashti, who are, you know, the creative leads of DreamWorks, the idea of doing uh, not just, uh, you know, a second movie, but a third movie. That really, that movie one, two, and three would be the, um, you know, a trilogy of the coming of age of Hiccup and Toothless. And, you know, Hiccup being the son of the chief of Burke, I mean, he has this destiny to fulfill. And, um, you know, Dean was very interested in, you know, he pitched basically the ideas for movie two and movie three at the same time. And the studio said, absolutely, <laughs> we're in, we're doing it. So in some ways, we have to think of How to Train Your Dragon 2 as the second act of a, of a three-act play, basically, or a three-act story of, of, of Hiccup and Tubeless. Excellent. Well, I've heard it being compared to uh, The Empire Strikes Back as a kind of more darker uh, kind of atmosphere around the film. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure dark, but I think definitely in the world of Vikings and Dragons and with Hiccup being five years older, he's now, he and his friends and everybody's, you know, it's five years later and um, I just think that the stakes are bigger. There's this great line in the movie that, that Dean wrote, of course, it said that Hiccup says in the very beginning, he says, with Vikings on the backs of dragons, the world just got a whole lot bigger. And so I think, you know, Hiccup is going to, Hiccup and Toothless are going to go explore out there and have new adventures. And not everybody is all keen to have dry, Vikings and dragons uh, get along and be friends like uh, Hiccup and his buddies on Bert. So I think some of the things that he, you know, comes across are just going to be challenging, you know, more challenging to him. But I also think it makes for better, better movie going, <laughs> better, a better movie experience. And, um, you know, uh, we had to live with the, not only the expectation of ourselves and of the studio, but of our fans, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, can't, we can't let them down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice, uh, it's nice to hear that there's uh, consideration into that. <laughs> absolutely. I, absolutely. We're, we, we, have, we have some great fans and they, you know, there's even, I was telling someone, there's even one website that we found at the countdown clock to have the release of How to Train Your Dragon 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to change it to three now, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly. So um, this film, if it, if it doesn't indeed pander to the kind of the uh, child-heavy animation diet that there is um, currently, it, it's, quite, it's quite a risk. I mean, do DreamWorks mind taking risks? I think if you if you even look at what you know Jeffrey you know Jeffrey Katzenberg's you know history as a as a as a, um, a movie maker and a businessman as a movie he you know he he does take risks he's out there all the time you know you know he's getting involved in you know we have studio in India we have involvement with building a studio in China I mean, he's always on that level of that and I think if anything it just you know goes to the fact of how much he supports, you know, supports Dean and his vision for the film and, and his, you know, his storytelling ability. I think that's the great thing about DreamWorks is that I think there isn't really a set DreamWorks style, so to speak. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I think different, you know, um, uh, directors, I mean, look at Guardians and look at, uh, you know, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I mean, these different movies have, they, you know, the crews, all of them have slightly different styles and, and I think that's why filmmakers and like to come there because they feel like that Jeffrey will support um, you know telling the story they want to t- they want to tell excellent um, well very much like yourself you didn't start off in animation like um, Jeffrey Katzenberg didn't start off in animation what kind of what clawed you in what drew you into into animation well, um, it's, it's interesting because I was talking with, um, I remember meeting with the folks over at Disney, and this was quite a while ago now, and um, they were uh, looking for uh, 
you know, uh, looking to hire a producer for a particular project, and over the course of meeting with them and talking with them, uh, one of the people I met with said, you know what, you know, I'm, and so I'm sitting here thinking, you should actually meet this guy over that runs uh, Disney Animation. It was At the time, it was a man named Peter Schneider, and he said, they, he would, they would really like you, and they're looking for a producer for one of their projects, and I had actually just finished the first Adams Family movie. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was the, sort of the state of the art for, you know, um, uh, effects work in films. And there wasn't even CG. And, um, and I thought, I was curious about it, but I didn't know exactly what they meant. So I, I, I decided to take a chance and go meet Peter Schneider. And he told me about this movie they were doing with this company in Northern California. And he said, it's going to be an all CG movie, but we think it's going to be managed somewhat like a, a big effects movie. And he said, we, you know, they know how to do CG, but they've never done a movie before, and you might be a good match for them. And I said, well, I really know nothing about animation. He goes, well, don't worry. We know that. But, you know, they, these people, you know, we don't, we don't you know, they've never, we've never made a movie, and they, they, they could use someone like you. Would you consider meeting the director? And so I said, okay. I mean, I just, it was one of those things where I don't know why I said yes. <laughs> but uh, the next day I came back, and I met John Lasseter, and we had this, amazing two-hour conversation about his movie and what he wanted to do. And, I, and you know what, even though I didn't really know much about, you know, the produ- you know, animation production per se, I had made some movies, you know, for the budget or been involved in movies for the budget they were thinking about doing it. And he pitched me the idea of Toy Story. And it just seemed, you know, it was just one of those things that seemed like, you know, for, for me as, a, as working in film, I like to work with people. I mean, for me, I'm a people person. And I, something I clicked with John, and I felt like I had something to offer him that I could help him, you know, realize his his, his movie. And and really, the Toy Story thing was, who knew, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it was one of those things where I kind of dove in, and it just was something that I I feel like I had really found my calling, you know, that I I liked um, I liked the people that I worked with, I liked the artists, and I liked taking time to having the movie evolve and. And um, I, I felt very fortunate to have that be my start, you know, my segue from live action films to animated films. And that's how I met Jeffrey Katzenberg. He was running, you know, Disney at the time. And um, I've worked with Jeffrey, you know, over the course of 20 years now. And he's, you know, it's been an amazing experience for me. I believe he suggested that Toy Story become a buddy movie, didn't he, at one point, instead of it being uh, a, a, a slightly different tale? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that, I mean, a buddy movie and animation at that time had not, it never, nothing like that had ever been done before, you know. And, um, uh, it was just, uh, it was an interesting idea and that, and, and, you know, the story sort of evolved and Jeffrey definitely had, you know, a lot, you know, he, he was really the champion of it at the time, even though he actually ended up leaving Disney about a year and a half before the movie came out, actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, movies about toys coming to life, um, Movies about uh, food-obsessed animals, uh, snack food-obsessed <laughs> animals, and movies about Vikings on dragons. I mean, are there certain, it seems like almost a set question here, but are there, are there certain films that can only and be Tarzan, produced? And Tarzan, in, Yes, and Tarzan. yeah, we'll ask about that as well. <laughs> are, there only, are there certain films that can only be made uh, in animation, do you believe? Definitely think. I definitely think every, I think there's definitely certain, I mean, listen, I think sometimes, you know, uh, there are movies that are definitely more appropriate for the technique of animation. I, I think a movie is a movie is a movie. I really do. And mm-hmm. I, and I, and, and I, um, you know, I definitely think of all these movies as films. And, 
But I think with the technology changing, and I think um, in that way, How to Train Your Dragon 2 is sort of groundbreaking. I think when you see the movie, I think that, you know, the line between what I call live action and animation tends to be, you know, get more blurred all the time. I mean, you could argue that movies like Thor and Iron Man are sort of live action cartoons. You know, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That, that, mm-hmm. that when you see how far How to tra- Train Your Dragon in terms of its look and its believability um, has has advanced, even from, you know, How to Train Your Dragon 1, movie 2, it's just, you know, it, and, and, it, and the goal is not really to make it real. It's really to make it believable. Where the audience forgets that they're, in, you know, they just become a part of this world. They forget they're watching a movie or they forget they're watching animation. They're just, you know, they're just involved with the story of Hiccup and Toothless. I think that's the goal. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the first trailer or one of the trailers released for How to Train Your Dragon 2 um, was accused of giving away quite a heavy plot point. Was it supposed to be a surprise? Uh, I mean, obviously, does oh, the film... The, about the... About uh, Hiccup's mother? Yes. Yes. Well, I think, you know, there was some debate. Listen, if it was up to me and Dean, we wouldn't tell anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but I think, you know what, that's, listen, the, there's, the story is complex. It's interesting. There's some twists and turns. And to be honest, the, the, the reveal of Hiccup's mother is just one. But I think, you know, in a good way, as many people said, it was it's intriguing and want to make wants to make them see more. I think that's the challenge. I'm not I'm not a marketing person, but I think the challenge of selling the movie and getting people to want to come see it is, you know, giving you just enough information to make you curious. I think the good news is you know that you know he discovers her, but we don't know that much about her. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I, we 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 made a point to tell not that you know we didn't give away anything other than that. And, and, and that, in a way, I saw just as many people online and, and the conversation being, oh my gosh, I want to, I want, I need, I need to know more. And I'm speculating about where she came from and what she's been doing and what role she's going to play in the movie. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, I think in a way, that's a good thing. There's still the, the friend or foe kind of element still to be kind of established. Yeah. Exactly, and, and I'm, I'm just telling you, is there, there's way more story to be told. There's a lot more twists and turns as we go through the story. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's uh, just the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So is, is How to Train Your, Train Your Dragon 3 in production? Uh, it's not in production yet, but we have an outline, and Dean has started to work on the script, and um, it'll probably, we're hoping it, in terms of the timeline, it takes place maybe just shortly after movie after movie two so uh, you know we're going to be using some of the same assets and you know maybe there would be a few different locations so um, you know a lot of the stuff is in place so we're just you know we're just poised to get started on it excellent you must be itching to uh, to continue with the, the story I am I am but not without a, a little bit of a vacation first <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, is this not a vacation running around telling everyone about the film <laughs> I guess so. Listen, like I said, if you love your work, you're you're never you know if you know you love your job, you're never working. Is what I say. So. Excellent. What a what a great philosophy. Brilliant. Well, we mentioned it earlier on, so it'd be rude not to ask uh, while you're here. At one point, Pixar, DreamWorks, and Disney were kind of tugging at your sleeve, saying, "Come and work for us. Come and work for us." Um, and you ended up working on Tarzan. What was that experience like? Oh, I mean, you know what? I, for me, as a producer, I think it's about the movie that I'm working on. And I have to say, um, listen, I have I'm. I'm one of the few people who've worked at all three places, 
And um, for me, it's really, like I say, about what movie it is. And at the time, I mean, I, I was, a, listen, I was a huge fan of Tarzan movies from the time I was a little kid. My father and I used to watch all the Tarzan movies together. And um, that was interesting. And I, I really liked uh, the, the directors, Kevin Lehman, and Chris Buck. And I felt like I could, listen, I always want to be a creative partner uh, with, the, with the filmmakers. And I felt like that was an important part of my decision to take that film. I liked the material. I liked the... The filmmakers, um, they were talking with Phil Collins about doing the music. I thought that was a very interesting element. And, and you know, and listen, I, I felt like, at least for me, I made the right decision. It was, it was a great, it was a great experience in my life, actually, you know, both professionally and personally. Excellent. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing How to Train Your Dragon 2. Thank and you. I hope you enjoy. I hope you enjoy. Thank you very much for talking to Squiggly Thank today. You. Yes. Nice to chat with you. So that was Bonnie Arnold, producer of How to Train Your Dragon and How to Train Your Dragon 2. Like we said before, funny film, not just for the kiddies. You know, and I'm not even like that big a DreamWorks guy. You know, I mean, I don't think that one studio makes all the hits and one studio makes all the misses. I think all of them have variable track records, but I would definitely put this one pretty high up there. And it's a sequel as well. So that kind of automatically goes against it because it's got something to live up to. But I really feel like this kind of stepped up to the plate and it did some amazing things with it. So also around the same time we talked to Bonnie Arnold, we managed to get a chat with Dean Dubois, who directed the film. He was also the co-director, I believe, of the original film and a co-writer of the original film. He was sort of brought in later in the game, I think. There were issues with, uh, like, adapting it. It wasn't going in the right direction and they needed some people to kind of steer it more in the direction where it, uh, well, toward the film that uh, we all know and love now. So I think based on... Uh, what he was able to do with that film. They put him at the helm of this one, and I think that's going to carry on into uh, the third film, which I think will be the last one. I think they're going for a trilogy with this. All right. We've already kind of sung its praises uh, quite a lot at this point, so why don't we just uh, go straight to our our chat with Dean Dubois. From what I can tell, uh, with this film, as opposed to the first film where you were brought on, I guess, as co-writer and co-director, but after production had started. Uh, in this case, you're actually both, like, completely. And uh, I'm curious as to what the sort of difference is in taking on that kind of responsibility this time around. Well, on the first film, it was a rushed job, in a sense, uh-huh. because we only had 14 months left uh-huh. before the release of the movie, yeah. which was immovable. So we had to, uh, we had to reconceive the story page one rewrite and uh, rush it through production to get it done. And I'm very proud of it. I think it turned out really well. And it took some risks that, um, that, were, that felt fresh and, and, and bold and interesting. But heading into this second installment, we had the full three years to really craft a story and, and to animate it with mm-hmm. all of the subtlety and, and attention to detail that we would have liked to have given the first one as well. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's, it's just a, a chance to, to really push the art form a little further. Well, there's definitely a sense of, I mean, four years is a a long time in terms of the technical developments with animation processes and softwares and stuff like that. What in particular in that regard do you feel has really given this new film an edge compared to Dragon? Oh, yeah. Well, in this particular film, we we are the first of DreamWorks movies to to roll out a new generation of software animation tools that um, kind of return intuition to the artists right. whereas before they had to work with kind of numeric inputs and mm-hmm. it was just really 
uh, time-consuming and and a little odd actually to watch it. I was kind of overwhelmed. Like, how do you get a nuanced performance out of mm. out of you know selecting left eyebrow and you know arch thirty yeah. <laughs> percent? It just didn't have a, a very intuitive quality to it. And now um, all of our animators kind of work with tablets and and stylus, and they can manipulate the characters in much the way you would working with your hands with a, mm. a clay puppet or any kind of stop motion animation. Excellent. You definitely got the sense of that from the character performances in this one, certainly. Yeah. We also have much more sophisticated rigs as well. Uh-huh. So the, the characters themselves have a lot more going on under the skin right. in terms of subtlety, many more controls than they had before. So it allows for uh, really detailed performances. Mm-hmm. And in the hands of a great animator, which we have many of, they, um, they, you know, they have everything to, to express in the most subtle of ways. So I think it, it actually is some of the best, um, uh, if, if not the best, human character animation that I've seen. Hmm. There's a lovely sequence where this one character is sort of making fun of the other character's yeah. body language and sort of perfect <laughs> example of that kind of right. thing. It's wonderful. Thank um, you. With this film and, and when I saw the first film originally, what I got from both of them is that uh, story-wise you're not pandering, you're not sort of making, you're not aiming for a broad audience catering to children so much. It's sort of talking to children and families and really everyone on the same level. And uh, I think those are the kind of traits of a a film that when you watch as a kid, you then see as an adult or remember as an adult, and they're the ones that stand out. I mean, was that an important part of the story was to sort of talk to people on that kind of level? Absolutely. I've never felt comfortable making films for children uh-huh. or, or second-guessing any audience, to be honest. Yeah. I think um, I always follow my own instincts, and I try to make a movie that I would like to see mm-hmm. and uh, that, that all of my colleagues would like to see. So we're, we're constantly trying to please ourselves and keep ourselves honest, and we hope that the extension, therefore, is that the, a larger audience might appreciate those same things. Uh, but you know, there's a, there's a conscious effort to balance the tone so that we never get too dramatically dark without then rewarding the audience with mm. something light. You know, there's always a balance of, of the dramatic and then humor, and the emotion is both sort of airy and euphoric, and sometimes it's, it's tender and it can be sad. Definitely want the whole gamut of the experience, but I think with this kind of a film that's speaking to such a broad audience, we want to make sure that, you know, every adult that comes to the film is going to be as entertained as... as any child they decide to bring along with them mm-hmm. and make sure that nobody's left out. The original author of the source material, uh, Cressida, was talking about how, for her, writing the stories was, in a strange way, kind of autobiographical. Mm. I was just sort of curious as to, as you were sort of writing the film versions of this, is there anything from your life that uh, has sort of bled into these characters and these scenarios? Definitely. Um, however, to tell you what those things are would be a, a plot spoiler because they they play out in the last third of the film. Okay. Uh, but I, certainly, like I, being a character who was who didn't excel at sports, who was um, a bit of a bookworm and an and, and artist, and who preferred to stay indoors and draw instead of uh, be out playing soccer. Uh, I always felt a little odd, a little, little uh, removed from the norm. Mm-hmm. And despite my efforts to assimilate, uh, I think I, I had to finally realize, I had to come to my own and realize that, uh, that um, I, I could be successful um, on my own, sort of define my own path. And that's certainly what Hiccup goes through. And I think a lot of us are that way. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a universal 
discovery, isn't it? To, to feel like an oddity and then realize that maybe the thing that makes you odd at first is one of the things that will be later celebrated about you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Dean Dubois, the director of House of Train Your Dragon 2. Still out in theaters. Check it out. I'd say with some confidence that you'll, you'll find it amusing and uh, very impressive, technically. Lots, uh, as we discussed just then, some real advances in um, what is happening with character animation and where we're going as far as like integrating mocap. And, and I mean, I have to wonder when you look at a film like this, I mean, I, I, like you say, you haven't seen it, but I think you've seen clips from it, right? Sure, yeah. I think you'd agree that some of the articulation in these character rigs and things like that is so sophisticated and really quite like, it's, it's such a real step forward. Mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't happen very often. Like you, you watch f- so many of these films and you see a very sort of incremental organic progression of technique and style. It's quite rare that you see a film that represents a leap forward. Mm. And I think this film is one of those films. And I, I have to wonder, are the Andy circuses of the world, the Andy circi, I think is the plural, they might have sort of cause to be a little concerned Especially with their, their sort of attitude of, of how they bring everything to the table in a way, and the animator, the animators are kind of like digital makeup artists. I think was the term being thrown around. And I don't know. I mean, the movement in these characters is pretty staggering. Yeah. And in a way, you know, you see motion capture. It's such a style of movement. It's so identifiable, even when it's cleaned up by the animators. It's like when you see rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. You just immediately know what it is. Yes. And it can masquerade as traditional animation but when they have like a character that's very like i was a relatively recent disney film i say relatively it was like beauty and the beast i think Mm -hmm. or aladdin or one of them and there was a scene where yeah beauty and the beast she's in the bookshop or the library and she's wandering around and there's a shot where you can tell it's rotoscoped or very heavily based on filmed movement yeah which they would throw... I don't think they do it so much nowadays because their animation is a lot more stylized. They would do it a lot in the olden days, like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and that kind of stuff. And it would always stand out a mile. Yeah. Because it would actually look kind of... Not crap, but kind of like shonky. Well, if, if you watch um, something like Snow White, I mean, every time we see the prince, and most of the time when you see Snow White, they look really rotoscope. But I think that's because they're positioned next to the dwarves who are so animated. That could almost be a, a crossover in itself, you know, the way that, you know, the animated characters are drawn and completely differently. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have needed rotoscoping for the, the obviously more cartoony characters. Yeah. Say, like, the difference between, like, Gaston's little mate in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Like, that character wouldn't have had any rotoscoping. No. Because he's so out of proportion. But, you know, the, the traditionally beautiful, proportioned female lead... And even then, like to see it sort of in something recent, and I'm sure they've probably done it since then, but like, I do feel like motion capture is kind of the rotoscoping of the digital era of animation. Yeah. Because it's so immediately identifiable. Sure. I mean, the leap forward for me in, in motion capture, I mean, um, in motion capture films, away from the kind of Zemeckis, I'm talking about the full motion capture films. I'm not talking about Rise of the Planet of the Apes or or... King Kong or any of the Lord of the Rings films, but the kind of animated ones was Tintin. And that's because the characters didn't feel like they were sort of floating around. 
there was a lot more uh, when a character fell or when a character got hit or when a character moved or, or, or there was weight to the characters. And I can't help but think that's because that was manipulated in animation. I mean, very much the same way that the Disney guys didn't use rotoscoping frame for frame. They'd remove frames to get slow ins and slow outs. They'd add frames. They'd really kind of make it so it fit the animation process and look like it was, well, like it was animated. And I think that I can, I'm pretty sure that in Tintin they did the same thing. They must have done the same thing to get, to give these characters a bit more life and weight and stuff. You know, so it's, it's a different type of animation. It's an animation where the, maybe the, the legwork's been done, but you can't just kind of get somebody to put a suit covered in ping pong balls, do a little bit of dancing, type a few bits and bubbles, and here we go, sorted. There we go, get that in theatres. 15 quid a ticket. It also it, it lacks the degree, I think, of research and education You know that a professionally trained animator will have mm-hmm. in terms of studying how people behave and act and how body movement is. And a performance, like when someone is actually sort of performing to a camera, might lack a lot of sort of subtlety because it's being sort of actively performed than say something that an animator could capture because they have such control over that degree of movement. So you could in some respects get, you know, a more realistic type of of movement, even if it is purposefully exaggerated to make more of a point Mm -hmm. or understated to make more of a point. It's done with good reason. I'm talking about the guys who are like at the absolute top of their field, you know, the the real high players in in the Disney universe. Mm -hmm. The, motion capture guys the duo owe an awful lot to animation and i believe um, barry purvis actually went down during the production of king kong and worked with the guys in the motion capture suits so they were all doing their their actions and things but it wasn't quite being captured by the technology and so barry had to push them to make it look like you know so when he beat his chest he really had to sort of fling his arms around and you know really make it look like he's beating his chest for example that's something that only a trained animator would notice, I believe. And maybe now with experience, somebody who's trained in motion capture, a motion capture actor would know that they'd need to put that extra bit of pantomime into a performance in order for it to be captured properly. Now, why is Andy Circus like the guy? Because I'm sure he's not the only guy, but he's like known as the guy who does that. Like, what is it about him that's special? It's got to be Gollum, hasn't it? It's got to be the way that Gollum was was sold to people. Right. You know, when the second Lord of the Rings film came out, it was like, well, there we go, there's an animated character. But it's not an animated character. It's a guy in spandex covered in ping pong balls. Hmm. You know, that's that was the the kind of the sell, wasn't it, of the, of the second Lord of the Rings film. And he's, you know, carried on since then, really. It's interesting that, like... I know there there haven't been challenges to the throne of of ping pong ball wearing, and especially given what you just said, wouldn't someone like a Barry Purvis or someone who really knows the physicality of animation wouldn't Barry Purvis like himself like if he just kind of rigged up a motion capture suit wouldn't that cut out the middleman in a way or I, I don't know I don't know enough well about that, yeah. someone who has experience in both worlds rather than have to sort of bring people from all sorts of different walks of life to kind of be like, ah, maybe do this, maybe try this. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that I've seen in the promotion of uh, the new uh, Planet of the Apes film, is it Dawn or Rise or something like that, the, the new one, that the the other stars of the, the kind of motion capture process have been credited as well. 
And these are people that are just exclusively motion capture actors. They're not like um, how Jamie Bell uh, was Tintin or how Tom Hanks was the conductor in the Polar Express or how Ray Winston was um, Beowulf. You know, these are actual motion capture actors uh, that are exclusively motion capture actors. You know, obviously they do other bits as well, but you know they're they're seen as motion capture actors. So to get that kind of um, pat on the back, and it, for it not to be just a kind of the Andy Circus show, is uh, is nice to see. Do you fear change? Well, you better get over it, because change is afoot. As quite a few of you know, Squiggly have been having informal Tuesday night chat sessions in our chat room. Chatty Tuesdays, they're a nice way to gab and gossip and keep you company during those long renders of an evening. As of the 1st of September, we will, however, be moving this to Mondays from the earlier time of 7pm, and our site guru Aaron is working hard to revamp and revitalize the chatroom interface, so it'll be all the more user-friendly, with new features such as in-depth user profiles, avatars, and a much wider means of sharing content with others. So keep your eyes on our Twitter and Facebook pages for more info in the lead-up. Also this week, we'll see the continuation of our web series Lightbox. Took a bit of a summer break, but we'll be back in full force with new mini-documentaries on all walks of animation. You can see video from our Dean de Blois interview, as well as clips from How to Train Your Dragon 2 in our most recent episode, and look out for talents from Cartoon Network, the NFB, Ardman, Lyca, and many more in the episodes to come. And of course, the best way to not miss an episode is by subscribing at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash squiggly magazine. Oh yes. Well, as we're recording this podcast, the news is kind of, well, I don't know if you can call it news, really, but the the stories here and there about um, Studio Ghibli either closing or taking a break or not closing or God knows what's going on. But yes, the story is that uh, Studio Ghibli might be taking a break from its animation uh, activities for the time being. Well, I mean, that's sort of all it does as far as a lot of people are concerned. So it's basically just sort of taking a break from existing, <laughs> I think. Yes. What's it? What's the replacement plan? It's sort of just handling its own properties? or I believe so, yeah. Becoming more of a, I don't yeah, handling the, the properties. I mean, it's quite, it's a popular studio full of popular characters and plenty of, of, of icons of, of, of Japanese animation. They are the very best, I would say, uh, from a Western perspective at least, at animation, you know, to come out of Japan. Yeah, them and those penis tentacle guys. <laughs> All right, second best. They're the second best studio to come out of Japan. When uh, Disney stopped doing 2D, it's like people turned to Ghibli and pointed to them and said, look, over there, 2D is still being made and it is still beautiful. So, you know, by that situation, they are still big sellers in merchandise and, and everything else. So I, I would presume that that's what they're doing is just looking after the brand, really. Although there are rumours that they are restructuring the studio to make way uh, for the next generation that will take over. Because obviously Hayao Miyazaki has um, has left the studio, he's retired. So there is that, you know, maybe they're just restructuring to, to you know, let the new blood in and, and you know, create some new stuff. Mm-hmm. Certainly the end of an era, either way. 
It is. But the uh, there's another there's a an absolutely charming story that I read earlier on in the in the month. And this was on uh, Rocket News 24. And it's uh, that Hayao Miyazaki, obviously he's retired, he's happily retired, and he's spending his retirement by spending every day at Studio Ghibli. <laughs> Which I think is an absolutely wonderful story. And it makes me, it reminds me of The Office, you know, when David Brent got sacked and he's still turning up for work every single day. <laughs> I guess this idea of, of Miyazaki running around just... <laughs> You know, trying to be everyone's mate and everything. When I graduated from my uh, from my MA, I would keep going back to the uni because we kind of got shortchanged a little bit on visiting lecturers. So they were very sort of nice enough to sort of let me come and see the lectures for the subsequent year group. So I'd sort of feel like I got my money's worth. And then I'd come back also to sort of catch up with the staff and catch up with people in the year below and punch light box paper and then it was just like I was the creepy guy who was just around the campus all the time. <laughs> By year three, it just got unpleasant. You know? So so this guy, I guess he just really, what, he feels a fondness for the studio? Or does he just like can't find his way home? Or what's the deal? I don't know. It, 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 he must feel fiercely protective of his legacy. And why not? You know, you've, you've got to give him that. Spending 25 years building up this fantastic studio uh, with such wonderful films. And it would be in- incredibly difficult to just let it go, wouldn't it? Imagine that, like pouring your life and soul into something and remaining fond of it. <laughs> That's rather nice. Yeah. Well, I just can't imagine doing anything for more than 20 years and not wanting to put my head through a wall. Because no matter how satisfying anything is, like in the first like few years of doing it, if you're doing that one type of thing for that long, without any kind of significant change of scenery, unless you're really, really into it, that's got to kind of eat away at you a bit. So it's kind of nice to hear. Well, I suppose running a studio is a little bit different. I mean, you continue with, you're doing a different feature film every time. He's, he's putting his hand in producing other directors' works and every year won't necessarily be the same for him. And as the studio has evolved and, and began its relationship with the Disney, I mean, I'm sure the pitch changed year in, year out. So it must have been immensely entertaining. And let's not forget, you know, Miyazaki's retired about 15 times and he keeps coming back. So is he retired? Isn't he retired? Who knows? Is the studio closing down? Is it, is it, you know, starting up again? Is it becoming a merchandise company? Is it becoming... Who knows? Just moments ago, Toshio Suzuki, Studio Ghibli producer, announced on the TV show of the MBS Junetsu Tairiku chain, effectively as announced as sources close to the studio, Studio Ghibli, will close and production studio anime, leaving himself only as a company that will manage its trademarks. It's that simple. (laughs) That's all we have to work with, by the way. That's the translation of the announcement. So no wonder everyone doesn't know what the f*** is going on. Did that make any... I mean, I kind of make a little bit of sense out of it, but you could see why there's a bit of a margin for error. Yes, yeah. You can see why everyone over here is just kind of scratching their heads and, and wondering what's going on. Read that out again. I don't think I can. I don't think my brain and and tongue can work with... I can read more of it. In the interview, Suzuki has also admitted that it was a major setback for the study Progress Hayao Miyazaki, one of the reasons already unveiled, the portal raccoon woman. What? What the f*** is happening? I'm terrified right now. I feel like I'm in the Black Lodge. Wow. Who did they ask? Did the person who they ask... 
have tinfoil wrapped around the head or looking from left to right and chewing on the lips. I've, I've, it sounds... I, I downloaded an app for when I went over to Annecy a, a couple months ago. It's one of those things you point it at, you know, like a foreign language street sign mm-hmm. and it d- detects the letters and it does a kind of like on-the-spot Google Translate. It's completely f- useless. <laughs> like you, you hold it up to like a word like fromage and it comes out monkey tits. What? <laughs> But that basically has the same sort of translational ability as whoever put this piece together. Bless them. Seem to be the only ones who actually did it, but <laughs> there's a bit of ambiguity in the air, mm. perhaps. Yeah. Um, and it, assuming that this does at least mean the end of animation production or a sort of temporary end of animation production from this studio, I think people are feeling it. There's certainly a kind of social media ripple of... of Quasi mourning, I suppose. Yeah, if that's too melodramatic a term for this type of thing. But when it was out, out as news that they were actually closing, we had a few comments from people eager to share what their um, what their thoughts were about the possibility of the studio closing down. So yeah, let's read a few of them out. Why not? So J.K. Ricky at Animator J.K.R. We've had him on the podcast before. Everything ends. And better than running into the ground. Um, can't wait to see what's next for the animators. It's a rather optimistic outlook there from JK. I agree there. It'd be nice to see uh, a little bit more variety from, from the animators. I mean, they're free to, to go elsewhere. And maybe the talent there isn't Miyazaki. And maybe the people working there will now be free to do what they want to do. Oh, so you're saying Miyazaki was the talentless one? I'm saying, well, yeah. That they were kind of propping him up. Oh, sure, sure. Kind of a sweeping generalization there. It is, it is. I mean, I wouldn't commit to something that strong. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's the kind of thing that could could have people turn on you. Yeah. Well, (laughs) bring it. From Yong Cheng, definitely a great loss. They were one of the best around the world. Their films will be remembered for a long time, I'm sure. It was Yong Chen at KYCR. UX, and I think uh, his sentiment echoes that of many. Do you have any particular favourite films? I mean, I'm 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 not the world's biggest uh, Studio Ghibli fan, but you can appreciate their work. I'm sure. Spirited Away, The Wind Rises, The Grave of the Fireflies. Just some amazing films just to come out of that studio. I do have a, a, a Studio Ghibli memory of uh from a few years back i was seeing a young lady who um she had roommates so occasionally when you're kind of you know walking about like at night or early in the morning she'd lend me her uh dressing gown which shall we say fit rather snugly on me she was a slender woman and uh it was a sort of blue gray furry dressing gown and she told me that when i wore it i reminded her of a, a studio ghibli hero and i'm like ah okay Dashing Prince, no doubt, or... She goes, yeah, he's called Totoro. (laughs) I'll show it to you one day. And then she did. (laughs) The thing is, he couldn't really falter for accuracy. That was the pisser of it. Excellent. But as far as actually seeing the films, um, well, I did see that one, you know, and I I imagine if I'd seen it as a kid, I would have rather liked it. You could appreciate why, to a generation of, of kids... You know, people who are our age now who watched it when it came out, you know, it was it would have been sort of captivating. 
So one last comment here from Maria Isquiado at Vinzel on Twitter. My heart aches so badly after the news. Uh, both individuals' hearts and the animation industry will suffer from that. Uh, that being the closure, or possible closure, of um, Studio Ghibli's animation division. Yeah, so a lot of heartache going around. Well, what doesn't kill us, eh? Yeah, and out with the old, in with the new, I say. One of our writers managed to actually visit the Studio Ghibli Museum Ooh. a few months ago. And uh, she was able to get some pics and, and write up about that. And I don't know if that's still going to be uh, a thing. I would assume so. I mean, now it has more cause as a sort of historical venue, I guess, mm-hmm. chronicling the work of the studio. So if anyone is planning a visit to Tokyo or Mitaka, get a squiggly and search out visiting the Ghibli Museum. Have a little look at what's going on over there. Hopefully that will uh, still be with us. And if you can get any information about what's going on at the studio, pass it on to us. <laughs> it's worth a shot, isn't it? Yeah, why not? <laughs> So any other any other updates from the animation world anything you uh you you have to report on Steve? I know you've been to Edinburgh. I have, yes. In the intervening weeks since the last podcast. I certainly have. Uh and a, a jolly time I had there as well. It was uh, a fantastic festival. The thing about Edinburgh, what I like about Edinburgh is it's the McLaren Award. Uh basically it's, it's the best of of British animation. It's a great excuse to to put all the British animation in, the new British animation in one place, you know, to be showcased to everyone. And I could talk about every single one of these films. They were absolutely gorgeous. And some of them that you will have seen as well, Ben, at other festivals, which I'm sure we'll go on to. Um, and some of them were, were like, um, were new. And uh, I haven't seen at many other other places, such as um, Mikey Please uh, made a little film called... Um, Goodness, newness, oldness, badness. And it was just a kind of cavalcade of craziness. It just it just took over the screen in in, in colour and uh motion and ideas and and this kind of cheerleader, um this kind of cheerleader chorus of people saying, Goodness, newness. It just it was it was crazy. And I think that that's going online uh, sometime early August on Mikey, please, and Dan Ojari's new website uh, and the studio that they've launched, Parabella Studios. Um, did you see that they'd recently released uh, Marilyn Miller online? Yes, I did. And that's good news, I think, for uh, everyone who has yet to see it or mm-hmm. people who have seen it and wanted to see it again, which I imagine is everyone who's seen it. Yeah. Well, it's just one of those really, really... Um inherently watchable films on many levels so Mm -hmm. i guess i hadn't seen it when uh we had him on the podcast um at that point i'd seen the other films of his but uh, i managed to catch it uh oh it was at annecy and you know very well received you get a kind of a dark humor from the eagleman stag but it's still kind of surrounded by a, a royal college of art mentality which you know what i'm talking about when i say that ben whereas um Marilyn Miller feels an awful lot more like a film that Mikey Please has made. Having met him, he's a funny guy, and and you know he's got a he's got a good sense of humour, and it comes across really well in Marilyn Miller without it being a kind of wacky, stupid kind of throwaway film. It's still got a, a degree of uh, of meaning and art to it. So yeah, it's a really nice film, and and people can now check it out online. Another film that that, that is available online, which which everyone would have seen by now, is Wallflowers by uh, Bjorn uh, Eric Ashim. 
I think he's been on the podcast, or at least he's been on Lightbox on YouTube. So that was nice to see on the on the big screen. He's the one where everyone just gets drunk. Mm-hmm. Other films uh, from the same program, The Monkey Love Experiments by uh, Will Anderson and, and Ainsley Henderson. Really cute, because you see the monkey all the way through and you know your heart's going to be broken. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a kind of... You know, it's like a film where you see an old dog and you know what's going to happen to the dog. It's like one of those films. Um, but but done in a unique and, and very stylish way. You know, it's it's very well realised, well thought through, well put together film, which I recommend anyone sees. And any festival shows, really, it's um, it's great. We've got a, a, an in-depth interview with uh, Will and Ainsley. On the, we, we did some podcast minisodes from, uh, from Edinburgh. Uh, so we've got a, a, a more in-depth interview with uh, Will and Ainsley on that one. Well, Will and Ainsley are kind of squiggly veterans at this point, I think. I think we, we've sort of checked in with them a few times over the last few years because they're always on the go. Like, they're always, there's always something happening with them. They do lots of little short animations as well as their sort of main films and lot, very different styles. Like, they're not just sort of straight comedies or straight dramas. They're sort of little subtle mixes of both. There's a quality of, of the films they do, but there isn't the, yet a sort of absolutely established signature style, and I think that's quite good. You know, there's a lot of room for experimenting in different sort of ways of making films. Mm-hmm. The story behind it's quite fascinating as well. The actual experiments, the sort of strange passive animal cruelty from back in the day. It is. It's, it's nice to see that they got invested in that story and decided to process what they felt about it through a film. Other films that were great were A Recipe for Gruel. I think this was a part of... Um, it, it was one of the... In competition at the, the, the British Animation Awards as well. Have you seen it? It's a 2D, uh, very well animated 2D film set in a kind of a post-industrial world um, where a, a poor old lady has to go and, and make gruel. And there's this, this sort of scathing narrator narrating her journey to make this gruel. Very well animated and, and quite, uh, yeah, great, a great film. I really enjoyed that. It yeah. was Sharon Smith, was it? Sharon Smith, yeah. I think she goes under uh, Miss Hathorn. I'm sure there's quite a few Sharon Smiths out there. Uh, two films about loneliness, which was directed by uh, Christopher Eels and Will Bishop Stevens. Now, this was a split-screen film, and the film on the left was directed by... Um, Will and the film on the right was directed by Christopher, and it's two guys in in a flat. One guy um, is trying to put together a internet, a, you know, Lonely Hearts internet kind of Match dot com kind of video, and the other guy is making a an internet video. It's a German hamster, <laughs> um, which is totally out of place compared to the guy on the left hand side of the screen. A German hamster is creating a cookery video. And the worlds collide, and and it's just a nice kind of interaction, a nice take on collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, neither neither artist had to compromise their own style or their own kind of their own uniqueness in order to put this film together. It's a very very well well thought through film about um, interaction. Really enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah, Mr. Plastimime uh, played at. Um, at this festival as well and got a very nice reception which was very nice to see because obviously Squiggly's been behind this project since the start so it's nice to see that get the recognition it deserves and uh, I think people who uh, will subscribe to the Kickstarter will have already seen the film but if not it is picking up awards at festivals and it is nice to see mm-hmm. see it does work sometimes 
<laughs> it does. If you actually make the film and get it out there, which isn't the case for some. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I raised the money. Well, guess I'll sit around for a while. <laughs> and it's worse if it's someone you know. Like if it's like, dude, come on, I I gave you some money in good faith. You know, whether it's a little or a lot, you know, is a self-respect issue after a while to just not do it, you know? Yeah. But this one, they did a good job with and they finished the film and it's a good film and it's it's very well animated. So yes. mazel tov to the Mr. Plastomime team, Daniel Greaves et al. Mm-hmm. Another film that I saw uh, was uh, Port Nasty, directed by Rob Schweitz, which is a very kind of dark film about a, a young guy who wants to be a whaler. And it's it's done in a very kind of... It reminded me of, of Frank Miller. Have you seen the kind of Sin City or the, any of the Batman stuff that, that Frank Miller's done? It's kind of um, bold colours. Yeah. Stark black, bright whites, and then a colour run through it. Well, this was done in blue, so it had a very cold atmosphere about it. And I will say that the director is a much better filmmaker than he is a dancer. <laughs> we went to the Cayley, which is like a big uh, dance... And I was there dancing with my girlfriend and we were, we were dancing away and everyone's dancing in sync and we were having a good laugh. And this guy in the, in the corner kind of stood on Jen's foot and kicked her shoe off. And we kind of laughed it off and Jen went, Jen went to get a shoe, but he carried on like and stood on her foot and pushed us out of the way like the f-ing Terminator <laughs> that, in a ballroom. He just sort of like spinning around. We're trying to have a laugh and, and, and have a good old dance like everyone else. But he's there with these sort of cold, steely eyes, just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of dancing around and, and taking no prisoners and just going for it and stuff. Um, yeah, and I only found out afterwards that, it, that it, this was the guy. This was the, the director. And and I still gave him a good a good review on on the site. I didn't, you know, but I just thought I'd take this opportunity on the podcast to say, uh, bloody learn to dance, have a laugh. Well, there is nothing more adorable than watching animators dance <laughs> at a festival, you know. Yeah, but I don't know. It's kind of sweet. Other films were uh, through the Hawthorn which was another split-screen film about, um, I think it's kind of a, a schizophrenia or something like that, and he's working through it with his mother and the psychiatrist, and each, each window is, is done completely differently, um, in, a, in a different style, uh, but it's the same interaction. So it's nice to see that style here plays a, plays a role as, um, to translate the kind of thoughts of the person involved. The thing that slightly let this this film down was that there was a little bit of of rotoscoping, which like blatant CG rotoscoping, you know, when you just put a filter on over a film. But then in other shots, you'd get a 3D turnaround done on a chalkboard, which was just mesmerizing. So to see these two things in the same film, these, this vari- variation in quality was a little bit took me out of the moment. But the story and everything else was was absolutely spot on absolutely perfect really enjoyed it the next film of note uh and another guest on the podcast uh, that the podcast minisode was uh, spectators by ross hogg have you seen spectators yet ben uh yes i believe so yeah i i i, I have said in my in articles in the past how much i hate football it's just a load of millionaires kicking a bag of air around a pitch it's not there's not much to it but this film as you would expect by a, a film called spectators really kind of shows the other side to the to the match what the game's all about and and it took me back to being a kid watching rugby with my dad you know so you don't have necessarily have to be a football fan to appreciate and enjoy this film ross is an incredibly 
talented, you know, young graduate from the Glasgow School of Art, and somebody hopefully who's who's gonna kind of make a big splash on the animation scene because his you know his work is is incredibly uh, worthy of that kind of attention. As is uh, Peter Millard. Have you seen <laughs> Have you seen the work of Peter Millard? Uh, it rings a bell. Uh, give me some film titles. Well, he did a film called in, in in festival called Fruit Fruit. Oh yes, I know this guy. Yeah, <laughs> he is nuttier than squirrel shit. His films mm. are, are are just that. It's it's basically like he'll draw some fruit crudely, you may put it, and then just keep drawing it, and so the fil- the, the 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 image will morph out of shape and and change into other things, and then it'll there'll be jump cuts and. The, the musical change and it's just an absolute feast for the eyes and hilarious because if you know the animation process and you're watching this film and you know that this man also understands the animation process and has created this with full knowledge of the, the parts where you'll laugh, the parts where you won't laugh. I, I put in my review that he's like a stand-up comic who knows mm-hmm. the crowd and he has them eating out of the palm of his hand. He's that good. Um, with the right audience, this film uh, will absolutely blow any crowd away. Really enjoyed it. Fruit Fruit by Peter Millard. 365 was at the festival as well. Uh, we, we talked to um, uh, Greg of the Brothers MacLeod uh, in the last podcast. Sang its praises as well. Such a good film. And I'm looking forward to seeing Martha because they reached their Kickstarter goal as well. I'd like to say it's because of us, Ben, but probably not. Well, that's a nice thought. Who knows how these things really work? Who knows what influence you and I have on the fickle public? But uh, wouldn't have hurt, I'm sure. Um, what have you What have you seen in the, in the on the festival circuit recently that we uh, we may have crossed paths and seen the same films? Oh, certainly there are a few that you know. I mean, ones that you've mentioned that I, I agree with um, for the most part. Generally, I think we both have a. The same kind of eye for quality films, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they're necessarily to our exact tastes, I think we both sort of can appreciate when a film is done well, you know. Yeah. And uh, has an audience, even if uh, you or I aren't it necessarily. As far as films that have absolutely scratched my kind of itch in terms of the, the weirdness and the humor or the just the style that I kind of gravitate toward... Uh, I saw some pretty good ones in Annecy. I could I could go on longer about the films that you know kind of annoyed me <laughs> in their <laughs> preachiness or their kind of adolescent uh, d- d- execution. Appro- yeah, but the, it sort of makes more sense to kind of talk about the good stuff. And I think there was some pretty excellent uh, work on display. There was a lovely film called Timber by uh, Niles Hedinger, I think is his name, okay. and uh, that was a film about. Uh, uh, logs in the woods, like logs and branches, but they're all alive, and uh, they're in the this this sort of snowy woodlands, struggling to survive because it's so cold out. And then one of them gets the bright idea that hey, if we break off a piece of ourselves, we can set it on fire, and we have firewood. So then it becomes this kind of you know obviously the firewood starts to run out, and so this group starts to turn on each other. Because you know they 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 need more wood to survive, and that was very very funny. <laughs> and I mean, it wasn't like 
rip-roaringly hilarious. It was a kind of, you know, quiet comedy, I guess. But just, it was very lovely designs. Great use of sort of color and composition. So very sort of cold backgrounds and the sort of warm colors where the action is. You know, the different shades of the logs and the fire and that kind of thing. But it really sort of communicated that sort of feeling of, you know, being in the cold with just a little bit of warmth, Mm. you know. Another one that had wonderful sort of color, but in a very sort of garish sense was a, it was very 90s. It was called Hair. I forget the title in the original language. And it was by a director called Delphine Hermans. uh, And that had this, like I say, very 90s aesthetic in terms of the line work and the color. And it's mainly about sort of sexual fetishes and uh, the role that hair plays with those, but done in this very kind of endearing way. A bit like a sort of Sidney Bauman type film, but without dialogue, mm-hmm. you know. But I found it very hard to sort of find much else by this director, if much else exists, or like a website, or much info on the film other than having seen it. So uh, I'm keeping my eyes open. If Festival Go is out there, catch that name and that title, then they, I would say it's worth, you know, popping along and keeping your eyes open for that one. Mm-hmm. And films that I've kind of mentioned before, I think, uh, you know, some good NFB films, a new uh, Toroko film. It's very nice, very sweet, quite witty. And more sort of, I think, directly autobiographical than her other films, which are kind of a mix of biography and, like, fables in a way. But uh, we have an interview with her up on the Lightbox as well, so there's some clips from the film in that want to check it out kind of a surprise for the nfb because it, it picked up awards um was a film called bus stories okay. which was by this very mysterious director called tali t-a-l-i it's a very kind of low-key traditionally 2d animated again sort of vibe of a different time kind of 90s issue almost 80s actually mm-hmm. it's about a bus driver who isn't very good at her job it's just kind of a, a scatterbrains in a way and the sort of weird friendship that she has, this kind of caustic friendship with the uh, the guy who owns the bus uh, that she drives. I don't know if it was expected to win anything, but it, it's the audiences like what they like, you know? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily have to tie in with films that there's buzz around. I found that the buzz around certain films didn't play out this year at Annecy. Yeah. Not nearly as much as last year. Like, it... Subconscious Password winning last year was like a done deal. Mm-hmm. Like everyone was just like, oh my God, you got to see this film. You know, it was, it was really kind of won everyone over immediately. And then it seemed more like things kind of took a bit of a left turn when it came to the awards at Annecy this year. Oh. It was nice because a lot of deserving films did win. A mm. um, couple of strange omissions, but you know, it always happens. Alex Gregg, we've talked about uh, the Late Night Work Club. Yes. Um, and his segment from that, doing the rounds as a standalone film, I think. I, I don't know if they're all doing that with their films, if they're all sending their films out. Is it called Phantom but, uh, Limb? Is that the one, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was one of the best ones. I don't want to, you know, not to denigrate the others. They're all very good, but it was one of my sort of personal favorites of that lot. So it's nice to see it sort of hold its own out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Marilyn Miller, like we said before, Invocation, the Robert Morgan film, debuted, I think, at Halloween on Channel 4 and is now still in festivals. Oh, nice. Other people like uh, Nicholas Bro. I'm not sure if he's come up before, but he's made some really nice films. His current film is called Foreign Bodies, and it's yeah. really nice use of CG abstract, but in the kind of, like, biological sense. Yeah, it's like MRI scans, isn't yeah. it, used as, in an abstract fashion, and it places you somewhere completely different. I don't know if it's, like... I mean, there is a bit of animation in them, 
But I really do like the um, the Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared films. They're kind of like Muppet films. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I think it's sort of like Avenue Q or um, Wonder Shows and starts off kind of like Rainbow almost. And then it's just sort of, they get weirder and weirder and darker and darker as they go. <laughs> but just lovely little lines and asides and, you know, but it's mainly live action puppetry. Yeah. But there are little bits of animation sort of scattered within it. So, you know, I'd, I'd say enough to sort of justify it being in an animation festival. But even still, they're just very good. But I think one of my favorite of the sort of recent crop, and I don't know, you know, if this is sort of doing the rounds in a major way, I do think it picked up an audience award at Annecy. Uh, it's called Anatoly's Little Saucepan. No, not seen it. I think he's pronounced Eric Monchot. It's about a child who has to carry a saucepan with him wherever he goes. And he can't get rid of it. And I think that it can be interpreted a number of ways, but it's, it's, and about the sort of relationships that are sort of alienated as a consequence, and then relationships that are forged as a consequence. And I think that there's a little parable of having, you know, any kind of weight dragging you down. And uh, what do you do? Do you retreat and sort of completely shun the world, or do you own it? And sometimes it takes, you know, some kind of intervention from, other people to bring you out of your shell, I suppose. I thought that was very nicely done. And just really lovely stop-motion puppets. Very simple, really, really in keeping with the, the illustration style of the book it was based on. But this very lovely flat style of um, uh, and very well-lit and, and put-together stop-motion. It was very sweet. Nice. And some others that I, uh, perhaps weren't my cup of tea story-wise, but I thought were great in terms of like the puppetry. There's a film that I've seen a few times now called Padre, Oh, yeah. The central puppet in that is, is just really, really good. Just well designed. The NFTS had a good year in, in Edinburgh this year. There was um, The Bigger Picture by Daisy Jacobs, which, as you were saying about uh, stop motion, it was it is a stop motion film, but it is done in, in, a, in an actual room and the walls have been painted. Kind of like Blue, you know, the guy, BLU, who did, like, graffiti, animated graffiti. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like that, but these characters interact with physical objects within the room as well. Oh, that's cool. Their arms sometimes come out of the scenery and interact. And so it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing, because by describing what happens in the film, I'm not really doing justice to the way that the story and the, the images come together in such a beautiful way. It's, it's a really nice film, and it made me think about my relationship with my brothers as well, you know, because it's about two brothers who have a tempestuous relationship with regards to their kind of frail mother, and it's very well put together and very well thought through. I think it's one of those films that you were talking about a buzz around a film, then perhaps I could see a, a buzz growing around around this film. And in the same respect, perhaps another film directed by Bexy Bush, Mend and Make Do, which I believe is, I think that's another NFTS film. And it's basically a house animated throughout time oh. with this old lady narrating the story of her life. So she'll talk about tragedy and falling in love and, and everything else. But this film is it's another film that reminds you of family and reminds you of, of people in your life. And this reminded me of my granny, you know, mm. and, and, you know, the way that she used to reminisce. And it is nice just sitting down and just been listening it's like listening to your granny again it's such a nice film uh, and so well animated as well and and uh, you know and she's talking about the war and baby booms and everything else and the dialogue is just charming just absolutely brilliant i think lynn schofield was the 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 interviewee who was just a i don't know who she is in relation to the director but they, they really got a gem with her and they really kind of translated it perfectly onto the screen 
another film by Claire Lamond, who gets a lot of exposure at Edinburgh, but she doesn't quite get the same exposure around the country, which is a shame because she's such a, a good filmmaker. The puppets in her films may not amount to much in ways of, of quality compared to bigger productions, but good God, she can get an audience to cry. She really can. <laughs> <laughs> Tear an audience up just using music and, and visuals. And and this was a, a film about uh, World War I, uh, and she used an archive to go through letters and experiences that couples had when they were away. And this son connects to his father, through a seashell. Uh, so whenever the son hears the seashell, he thinks of his father. But whenever the father sees a seashell on the seashore, <laughs> he obviously it transports him back to the First World War. And it's about struggle and, and, and everything else. It's such a poignant piece of work. Um, and it's not too syrupy either. I mean, people may say it's syrupy, but I don't think it's too syrupy. I think it's, it's the right amount. Sometimes a bit of syrup is not the worst thing in the world. Absolutely, yeah. And... Uh, before I kind of finish my sort of roundup of the films I saw at Edinburgh, I can't really go without talking about My Stuff Granny, which won the McLaren Award, which was the first... <laughs> Here's the thing, the McLaren Award is two screenings, and the first film and the first screening was My Stuff Granny, so there was no point in watching any of the <laughs> others. <laughs> May as well have just you know given the award out then, but My Stuff Granny by uh, Effie Papa. It's a, a, a film about a, a Greek family a father, a daughter, and his elderly grandmother who gets hungrier and hungrier. And it's, uh, uh, But the, the family's sustained by her pension. It's very dark in certain places, but in a kind of Roald Dahl twist. You know, Roald Dahl bleakness, and there's a kind of Weekend at Bernie's <laughs> <laughs> part of the film as well. It's, nice. it's a very nice uh, film. It's a little bit macabre, but, but just cute right the way through. Very nice film. Deserved winner, you know, but but in a very strong category. I mean, all the films. I don't think I'd have been disappointed with many of the other films winning. But, you know, my stuff, Granny, is good a choice as any. Yeah, well, I think it uh, sounds right up my street. Mm-hmm. Yes. I look forward to hopefully catching that one soon. Uh, yeah. It's another NFTS film, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah. So they really have had quite a strong crop. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very strong year for those guys. Always worth keeping an eye on them, I think. If not in terms of festivals and stuff, just at the... The quality of the stuff that comes out anyway, animation-wise, you know, even if it doesn't go on to win, it's always nice to see um, what they're up to. Oh, yeah, we're watching you. <laughs> My God, how creepy. So, yeah, those are the little guys, but uh, we've got a we've got an interview coming up with, I suppose it's safe calling the big guy, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, this would be, I guess, the, the biggest guy around, the mouse. The new Disney film is uh, not really out there yet, but they did premiere it at Annecy, and I think I mentioned it uh, in the last episode. It's the short film that accompanies Big Hero 6 when that film comes out later in the year. You know, I liked Paperman and I liked Get a Horse, but I really like this one. And I think, you know, again, it's just sort of, it, it appeals to my kind of things that I respond to. I like cute dogs and I like food, and it's about a, a cute dog and food. So there you go. Do the math, people. It's called Feast. And it's directed by Patrick Osborne. He, he got quite a lot of praise for Paperman. He's the, uh, I think he's one of the supervising animators on Big Hero 6. So he's been pretty busy, hasn't he? Recently? Yeah. He's a busy guy. So there's a track record of, you know, quality and short filmmaking behind this chap. And I think he, um, he's done a very good job with this. They went into the sort of process behind it when they did a talk in Annecy. It was one of the, the 
most sort of well-received uh, Annecy events, probably just next to How to Train Your Dragon 2, which had the insane mania around it. Like, that was, I think, again, I talked about it last time. It was like people were, like, seeing the Rolling Stones. So it was it was interesting to see people get so excited and so worked up. And he's like, and at the end of the presentation, after we'd seen the film and he'd sort of gone through the press, like, hey, do you want to see the film again? And everyone's like, yeah! It was good because we all wanted to see the film again. But, wow. They played it twice. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I think it's nice to kind of see it, then learn about it and then see it again with what you know. Yeah. What you sort of since learned and then sort of picking up on things. And interesting, like the, the original concept behind it was not a million miles away from 365, the Brothers McLeod film, where, you know, that was based on a second of, of animation every day. This was based on like video taken for one second every day of his dinner, mm-hmm. like every day, just like one second of video of what he was eating that night. That then comes together over, you know, a couple of months. You have this quite long video of just food. And um, it becomes sort of weirdly compelling to sort of seeing different dishes sort of presented to you a second at a time. So that kind of became the sort of structure of the film, although it isn't like per second. It's sort of like four or five seconds per meal of this dog's life. So you see sort of all the sort of main meals. And as his owner sort of starts to spoil him more and more, let him eat people food which, of course, he's besotted by. Mm-hmm. And then you start to sort of pick up things about the owner's life as well and his love life and the sort of troubles within. And so he, he goes out with a girl who's, who's more of a kind of grown-up in terms of her eating habits. So, of course, the dog's food supply dwindles because there aren't sort of potato chips and bits of bacon and steak sort of left over anymore. So the dog hates the woman. I won't sort of go into more because it is a short film and, and there's not much more I can say without actually sort of given most of it away but that's a sort of essential premise obviously great animation puts me a little in mind of the uh the old ant blades film from a few years ago which i think was called dinner it was about a dog trying to get his dinner obviously this was a big budget version of that kind of interaction between a dog and his sort of food but captures the same charm of seeing dogs and food and the occasional struggle therein Mm -hmm. so yeah i i thought it was great so our features writer, Laura Beth, was with me at Annecy, was able to get some time with the Disney team, who were behind Feast, Patrick Osborne, the director, Christina Reed, the producer, and Jeff Telly, the production designer, who had a big hand to play in the uh, look of the film. Let's hear from them. I'm Patrick Osborne, I'm the director of Feast. I'm Christina Reed, I'm the producer of Feast. I'm Jeff Telly, production designer of Feast. So this film came about from a, like a short drive in Disney. Could you explain that process a little bit? Uh, sure. Uh, Disney opened up the idea of shorts pitches to the studio about a year and a half ago. And uh, basically anybody in the company can, uh, or anybody in the animation studio um, can pitch short ideas to uh, development and then move on to the story trust Dan and John Lasseter. Uh, and it's an amazing opportunity for artists at a studio like that to kind of get their ideas out there and potentially make something. Uh, and it's been very popular. A lot of people have come forward and um, it's pretty cool that it exists. It's amazing to work at a company where that opportunity is there. You know? And when you did that, there was like 
Can't talk about those. Oh, it might happen, you know. You oh, never okay. know, you know. <laughs> you know, the, basically, you you have three, and um, you have you want to like all of them because you want you want to make sure that if one does get picked, you would be in a position where you could put all of your effort into it, mm. honestly. And I still do like the other two um, for maybe something in the future. You never know, but you want to just leave that option there. So. That's why I don't mention it. The but. other thing they're looking for when they ask for three ideas is to make sure that they're not overwhelmed by just the idea. They're actually really, by, by any single idea, they're looking to see if the candidate can lead a crew, if they can pitch passionately, if they can get people on board with following them to making something that's, you don't know where it's going to go. So. Um, that's another thing that you can see more clearly when you see them pitching different ideas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the original idea and where, like, where it came from? Yeah, it started uh, with, uh, in the middle of the project I actually went and dug through old notes to try to figure out where it came from. Because it had been sitting in my head for a while. And uh, it was a sketchbook in 2006 with a list of dinners um, that are basically like a single a single guy dinner through trying to impress someone on their first date through uh, comfortable dating like going to the movies what dinner like simple dinners would be and then what the breakup meal is like or what a romantic meal is like and just the idea that you could you could tell a life story and just see the plates uh, and it, I thought maybe it would be a live action thing or you know an illustration project I don't know but you never know what any idea is so it goes on the list. Just in, in a note-taking app that I have of potential potential ideas that you could do in the future, and then when the option to pitch comes up, you kind of look through your list of stuff that like, oh, if there was a dog in that meal thing, there might be something interesting, you know, with the play of you know, dog below table. There's like there's like a status thing you can do with camera, and the design of food seemed cool, and then playing around with that video, um, one second a day. Uh, app with that idea also kind of cemented that maybe there is something there in the quick edit and uh, I'm telling the story that way and it sort of evolves organically from there through pitching to development and other directors and the story trust to into something that it ends up being you know and even through story once it's once it's greenlit and ready to go you still are evolving it and kind of finding where it ends up uh, that makes sense on that note, the imagery for the whole film is absolutely beautiful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the research that went into making the imagery? Yeah, uh, we start from referencing a lot of things. And one of the first things I did was talk to a food stylist. Another one was that they natural light is important for food. Uh, if it looks like it's in dingy light, then you get the sort of feeling that it's not edible. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and another one was that we really focused on making the ingredients recognizable and, and separate. That was actually a really surprising thing that they do, is that they take tweezers and like they will organize for the shot like pieces of like a hamburger and and make sure that, well, you can't see that there, so we'll put it here. Uh, they're very careful and meticulous about the way you can see the food. Uh, that's what makes you drool when you look at it. 
they advertise machine out. Uh, so that was important. Um, the other one was the research of lighting, just you know, knowing great photography, knowing great uh, videography and uh, cinematography, and just we knew that we didn't want to be completely flat, but we wanted to be inspired by flatter design. Patrick likes that stuff, and I like that stuff, and, but we also like. Film. So, how do you get the two to blend together? And we made sure that we only put the things that worked with each other, complement. Like, you know, bokeh lens effects, these really nice dots, and simple, like really graphic shapes that can be overlaid in the image. And um, feeling of light was important for the story. The emotional appeal that when you look at a certain type of lighting that it makes you feel a certain way. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we tied that story completely. So, but yeah, we the research involved is what, like the things that we like to do and like to see, and we wanted to kind of put it all together. You know, we wanted to tell a story with the cinematography a little bit. You know, it's pretty neat to be able. You want to. You want to tell a story with everything, all the tools that you have. So you, you figure out what your arc is going to be, and then you say, how can I make the camera tell this story? How can I make light tell this story? Um, the camera is locked down for most of the short, and uh, it only unlocks when he, when Winston uh, acts in a way that's a little above what a dog's intelligence should be, when it becomes a little more cinematic and magical then. So we made rules that... The lighting represents sort of his point of view of the food, and then the camera represents sort of the movie's um, sort of magic, uh, that it's kind of natural and still and normal at a certain point, and then it becomes more out there and magical. And the food, if, if, it's, if it's good food, it's in light. If it's bad food, it's in the shadow. And if it's sort of the in the mix moment, it's kind of cut by the light. And you have all those tricks, so you might as well use them to accentuate the story as much as possible and get people to feel it in ways that um, aren't exactly obvious to the audience, but they can kind of be brought along and emotionally. Um, I love, I love crazy cameras and stuff. So it was, it was really hard to be disciplined and say, no, the camera's not going to move at all until it needs to, but I think it pays off because you notice it when it moves as being way more fun than the rest of the camera work. So and there's something, I'm glad people notice that stuff because it, it, it is subconscious a little bit, or it should be, but it's out there uh, that, that people notice it. It's cool. Uh, you know, as an artist, you like you when you're evolving, you tend to take things that you think are working and then you get rid of things that maybe you've done before that you want to try something new and you add things to it. That's how I see like this film is that we've done some things on Paperman that I think work really well. And there's no sense in like taking getting rid of that. But there's also a different story to tell. And you have to understand what the story is first uh, and what the intentions are with the story. So once I understood where he was going with it, you kind of know what what you need to add to it. Um, what we kept from Paper Man, I feel, was that flat sense that we all kind of like. That, um, it's a simplicity about showing and telling the story uh, that we really appreciated in Paper Man, so we wanted to have that. But what we added to this film is the sort of the video the aspect of film overlaid through that. We use a lot of shallow depth of field. Uh, we use uh, focal lenses. Um, color. I, I'm getting there. Sorry. I'm getting there. Um, and uh, but you know, also using color as an emotional tool. 
um, food is you know very important. So understanding what those colors are and being very specific about that, uh, that's something that we were able to use to tell the story as well. As artists, you have this set of tools, and you try to use everything you can to make the particular image. And for us, the goal of the image is more important than whatever technique it is to get there. And the technique is just how can we make this happen by May, you know? Like, we need to make this amazing visual that we've tried, that this visual that we're trying to hit, this goal, it needs to happen with the artists that we have here in this amount of time. So your tools are just getting you to that. Um, so we had uh, the Paperman tools and Meander available. We used them in the spots that were most needed in a little bit of the expression, accentuation on the character's face, but we didn't, but the design of the the, sh the the world is a lot more shape and less line driven than Paperman was, so we didn't need it nearly as much to make the image look finished. It was just about making the image look finished and beautiful, and the shapes being very specific. And I think in Paperman, the techniques that we were using in both are very, they're very good at being strong with your visual language and your value structure of every shot. I think people react to the movie similar because of that a little bit, because the value structure in Paper Man, it's all value. And, and in this movie, we really planned out value structure very specifically. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's kind of what feels similar too, is that the yeah. compositions are, are tight um, yeah, in every he, shot. There was a moment where Josh Staub, our visual effects supervisor, he's like, come over to my office, I want to show you something. And he had taken all the color out of, of our show and he did yeah he and, so, but, um, and he <laughs> oh, watch it it's, it's awesome and we were like watching it and we were like it, he's like it's amazing how close the values look to like paper man like there's something that we learned I think from that just you force yourself when you work with black and white to be, be very conscious about value and structure and things I think it really added to the show that once you put color on that it makes it just that much more pleasing and appealing uh, I, so yeah, it was it was interesting to see that when Josh showed me, like, yeah, look, this is like Paper Man, but for dogs. <laughs> um, in, in the value sense, but it was fun to see that. Yeah. yeah. This was your first time directing, wasn't it? How did you find that? Oh, it's, it's a dream. Like, it's uh, to be able to see something from uh, an idea that isn't really solid and then to have the help of so many great artists come in to like, make it solid and finished is really great because it's very hard to clarify things to yourself just in your head or on paper with your own set of skill but all our combined skill is way better than any individual so that privilege is not lost on you at all at, at any time during the production of how, uh, how much of an opportunity that is and uh, it's very lucky and it's very nice and you get a little spoiled because it's like what do you think what do you think, what do you think? all day but uh, you know I got to animate too on it so it's fun to actually do the asking and then actually do something and ask other people, is this good? Does this fit in? Because you get on your own work, you kind of lose that too. Uh, you animate, you think it's great, and then you kind of put it up against everyone else's work, and just like everyone else. So, uh, it's kind of fun, but you know, after the whole process, you know, every step is really is really fun in a different way. So it's a neat process because nothing gets really, it's never boring because everything's different all the time. So yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. And to be able to work with friends and people I've worked with before that 
I know who I trust and I know we'll get to a great result. It's really nice. It'd be nerve-wracking if it was a, that support wasn't there. You'd be very nervous. And for you, how was it overseeing the production on this? Well, I've worked with Josh and Patrick for quite a few years now in lots of different roles, and um, it's really quite a joy to watch them now taking their art to a new evolutional level. Um, and there's nothing like working with creatives you trust because it makes my job easier. I don't need to be standing over there, over their shoulders, thinking, "How is this going to shape out?" I'm just. I can go handle all the other things that are, they shouldn't be worrying about. Um, so it was just, it's fantastic. And I'm grateful to them for bringing me back to Annecy again. <laughs> and, you know, but like, looking, Such a gift. <laughs> looking back at Paperman, she's all, she was always like, what's a cucumber? Oh, right. Like even when she was taking chances on us, like I feel like when she was able to manage the team like in a calm way. And I think for us, and I don't know how to speak for you, but it's interesting. Like I feel like that's such a valuable asset to have like, the support that you need, but also something that's calm enough to like allow you to make your mistakes. And it's like okay, I know I I own all of this and I'll live up to it, but I think you're you're good at that. So. Thank you. I, Oh, but on camera say, no less. It's the last time I'm going to say this, <laughs> and the first time I'm going to say this, but, um, but it's, it is important to think about this. Thank you. It's like a face It is. If you feel like when there's, you get that tension sometimes in production, I think it's really that there, you can feel their like worry and it's stress and, and it does, it does affect you. And, uh, and you know there's money involved, you know there's things that are beyond what you're doing, so it's important to have that kind of support and calmness. Excellent. Well, that was all my questions, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It's great to be interviewed by Squiggly again. Thank you. That was Patrick Osborne, Christina Reed, and Jeff Turley chatting with Laura Beth Cowley about Disney's Feast, the short film which will be accompanying Big Hero 6 in cinemas and I assume on home video as well when the day comes. I believe the film will be released in the States early November, and in the UK, early 2015. So, bit of a wait this side of the pond, but it'll be worth it, I assure you. And as the uh, rather irritating drum loop beneath me indicates, we have come to the end of this episode of the Squiggly Podcast. Thanks also to our other guests, Dean DeBlois and Bonnie Arnold, director and producer, respectively, of How to Train Your Dragon 2. It's still out there. It's still very good. Check it out if you haven't yet. You'll wish you had sooner. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can do ben at squiggly.co.uk or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, which is at squiggly. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. The Squiggly podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Ben is at Ben L. Mitchell. And don't forget, for all the latest animation-related news, reviews, interviews, and podcasts just like this one, visit squiggly.com. <laughs> oh, oh my. Oh, I am contributing. Culture, yes. <laughs>